Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us. Something very exciting happened last night in baseball. I'm We're so gonna excited. get to that in a moment. We spent three hours talking about pitching. <laughs> You just Is this did. Your dream? No, you would. Oh me no, I'm very show. excited. We're allowed to do that. Yes. Oh wait, no, there's news too. Very excited. Yeah, yeah, there's a little other news going on in the world, but we're going to talk a lot of baseball this morning. So let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, June 29th. Buckle up. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg tells CNN that today, one of the busiest travel days of the holiday weekend, is going to be a major test for the airlines. The industry, of course, has been roiled in chaos all week. United says they are all hands on deck trying to get the airline out of a multi-day meltdown of their schedule. Also this morning, Russian President Putin is set to speak this hour as fallout continues from the rebellion. Today, there are serious questions mounting over the whereabouts of a top general who reportedly knew about the planned insurrection. Also, parts of the Titan submersible have been recovered from the ocean floor. The U.S. Coast Guard says they've found what they believe are human remains. Madonna forced to postpone her world tour following a health scare that has landed her in the ICU. We've got the latest on her recovery. And in the most important story of the day, without any question, history on the diamond for the first time in more than a decade. There has been a perfect game in Major League Baseball. New York Yankees' Domingo Herman, seen in this morning, starts right now. I love this for more than just the fact that it is the first time in 11 years yeah, that it's happened. Felix Hernandez. Why do you love it? Because baseball is such a beautiful and wonderful game, and the perfect game. It's happened only 24 times in the history of Major League Baseball. Right. Four times for the New York Yankees, by the way. Best team in the world. Um, Last time was 1999. You don't, no, you can't expect it. In Oakland, worst team in baseball. No one's actually going to their games anymore. Domingo Herman has been terrible for the last two starts. Comes in, throws a perfect game. It's just like you it's never know what you're going to get. To the Oakland A's. Um, I think their fans would agree. Okay, I also love this because he did it for his uncle. His uncle died two days ago, and he said this was all for his uncle. So I love that part of the story. Yeah. I also love this. Okay. Who's that? Why? Who is that? Are you intimidated? Who by is that, Phil Mattingly, scholar-athlete? That was literally the peak of my baseball career, was photo day my freshman year. That was like the most action I think I got uh, during my career at Ohio State. But that's, uh, I like the wristband, too. You yeah, like the, have not was, aged. In case I was sweating during the team photos. You have not aged. You're also going to see that a lot in the next three hours. Oh, that's great. Thanks, guys. That's I appreciate everybody not mentioning that in the morning meeting. That was really nice. Yeah, you're welcome. Wasn't even my idea. Blame the control room. I always do. Much more of that ahead. But this morning, more than 120 million Americans under alerts for dangerous air quality as a thick wave of smoke from Canadian wildfires smothers the nation. That's a third of the entire U.S. population. From Indianapolis all the way to Washington, D.C., take a look at these live pictures from cities across the country. This morning, Chicago and our nation's capital have been ranking as the most polluted cities in the world. Minneapolis, Cleveland, Detroit also in the top 10. This, at the same time, a deadly and record-breaking heat wave is scorching the South and expanding with more than 80 million people facing this extreme heat. So let's start off this hour with our meteorologist Jennifer Gray tracking all of it for us from the Weather Center. Good morning. There's the smoke and there's the heat. Not a good mix. 
It's not a good mix, and it's going to be a while before we start to see relief from this. We are seeing um, the red and purple dots all around Chicago, Detroit, even spreading into portions of the mid-Atlantic, even the northeast, New York City, even under a moderate level uh, for that unhealthy air quality. And so these are some major cities across the Midwest and even into the northeast. This is a story we have heard before. We said that this could happen again, and it is. Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, New York, uh, Philadelphia, D.C could all suffer from poor air quality today. New York City, not technically under that air quality alert, but very, very close. So you will have some hazy skies. Chicago, D.C., taking the top two spots for the poorest air quality in the world right now for any of the major cities across the world. Nothing to brag about there. We have visibility that's very, very low, less than one mile in Cincinnati. A lot of places are right at one to two miles of visibility. So the forecast moving forward, we do have some thick smoke across Chicago, as we saw, but it will start to dissipate throughout the day today and even in tomorrow. You can see these blue colors still indicating smoke in the atmosphere, but this is most likely higher level uh, smoke. So you'll notice it in your sunrises, sunsets, things like that, but it won't be as oppressive as we've seen uh, with that lower elevation smoke. Also, the heat is a huge story. We have an area of high pressure. Heat is just trapped under this, what we call a heat dome across the south. And we still have excessive heat warnings in effect. Heat advisories could still break records for today. Uh, temperatures are going to be very, very hot, especially spilling farther to the east. Places like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, we're looking at temperatures feeling like the triple digits today. Actual temperatures will be in the triple digits for some places. Dallas, another day uh, in the triple digits, 102. We start to see temperatures fall, though, in some of these locations still above normal and still very hot. But at least we're seeing temperatures trending in the right direction, guys. So it's going to be another dangerously hot day today. Um, this heat wave still going strong. Jennifer Gray, appreciate the update. Thank you. All right, we also have politics this morning, a lot of politics. It is a presidential election. After all, there's new polling in that 2024 race. Now, I'm going to caveat this literally every day until November right. of next year. Polls are snapshot. Polls do not tell the whole story. We are a long way from the first caucuses. We are a very long way from Election Day. However, that snapshot is important. Were you raising the well, roof, quit. John Avon? You're not, yes, I haven't even introduced you yet. You You're not allowed have to seen take what action. He just did. There was raising the roof. <laughs> we'll get to the raising of the roof in a minute. On that new polling, though, in the critical battleground state of Pennsylvania, President Biden, former President Trump, just about even 47, 46. That's according to Quinnipiac University's latest poll. In Wisconsin, the latest Marquette Law poll, critical poll in that state, finds Biden leading Trump. 52 to 43. Now, that new polling comes as Donald Trump continues to maintain significant frontrunner status in the GOP primary, despite those growing legal threats. One of his rivals in the race, Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, slamming Trump last night to our Caitlin Collins on CNN, calling him a grifter for using fundraising donations for his legal defense. He's going to middle class men and women in this country. And they're donating 15, 25, 50, $100 because they believe in Donald Trump and they want him to be president again. They're not giving that money so he can pay his personal legal fees. And let's remember something. He's a billionaire. He's a billionaire, self-professed billionaire. Why do you think he's not using his own money to pay for his legal fees? Because he's the cheapest person I've ever met in my life. That's why. 
Joining us now, Elliot Williams, CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, John Avalon, noted ambassador to the youths uh, with his raising of the roof uh, that you all weren't unfortunately able to see, analyst, <laughs> senior political analyst and anchor for CNN, and Jessica Washington, senior reporter for The Root. Jessica, I, I want to start with you because I thought that we have seen the former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, level a number of kind of different attack lines at former President Trump over the course of the last several weeks. But this is one that I found interesting because it gets at the core of his supporters themselves. And this idea of you continue to hit a button that oftentimes you hit a donation button and it's a repeat donation. You don't even know it's repeating month after month after month. He's taking their money. He's not using it for his campaign. That would seem to resonate to people that don't necessarily like that. Do you think it does? I think it's difficult. It's really hard to imagine a situation where Trump's base leaves him over something that Chris Christie says, particularly calling him a grifter. These are not new attacks against Donald Trump. I mean, this has been going on since the 2016 election, even before then. So I think it's difficult to imagine that Chris Christie is going to be able to hit that note with his supporters. There's something else I thought was interesting. If we can play a little bit more of Caitlin's interview with Chris Christie, and this is um, him talking about mistakes he thinks were made last time around in terms of not going after Trump early enough and what they need to change the other candidates he thinks need to change this time. Here it is. This isn't new, Caitlin, the boxes thing. We would get on Trump's plane and the first thing that would happen when he sat down is Keith would go and get that box and put it in the seat next to Trump and Trump would open the box and he would start going through the papers. When they call up, you know, his beautiful mind boxes that the the, the staff called up, I knew exactly what they meant. It was like a security blanket for him. Okay. Sorry, that was not what we're looking for. But let me, what he did say to Caitlin is we didn't go after Trump enough. We allowed a certain narrative to set in about Donald Trump that then became impossible for us to change or or, or overcome. Do you think that he will convince more of his rivals in this primary to go after Trump in the way he is? Yes, I think he's opening the door. I think he's got the charisma of common sense and his convictions, and that authenticity reads in politics. And all these other candidates kind of tiptoeing around Donald Trump, I think that projects weakness. Um, and you need clarity. You need to play offense in politics. It's always the best defense. Donald Trump understands it. Some other, other candidates think you can co-op parts of their base. The reason I was raising the roof earlier, Phil, was because I think we do spend too much time focusing on horse race politics and not enough about underlying dynamics. They're snapshots in time. They're valuable. They're interesting, but they're not the main event. Um, and, and I think Christie has done himself really a lot of favors, beginning with the CNN town hall, by, by reminding people that he's actually a pretty unique political talent. He speaks clearly, he cares about policy, and he's telling the truth. And that itself has a charisma about it. Elliot, we talk about the legal issues constantly. We don't talk about them through the lens of puncturing, kind of that, as Jessica was referring to, kind of the core base of Trump's support. And I don't think anybody's naive enough to think that that would actually happen. I think the Trump team knows that as well. But as you as cases, plural, continue to kind of unfurl, more reporting comes out to go with the indictments we've already seen. If you're an independent voter, if you're a Republican who's maybe not totally sold on the foreign president, even if you liked your policies, what are you thinking about as you're seeing the legal issues in terms of severity? Well, it's funny. I, as a former federal prosecutor, see someone get indicted uh, and think, wait a second, perhaps this individual isn't the best standard bearer uh, for the political party I might belong to, right? Um, yeah, it's a novel. Crazy. No, 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 but again, no, having sort of lived in that world for quite some time, to me, it just seems undeniable. But I, you know, I certainly could not tell people how, or how they ought um, to vote. Now, I think... 
if you break the cases up into a few different buckets, a number of them involve people. So let's take um, New York and New York, um, the, the district attorney, yeah. and in Atlanta, these were people that ran for office committing or at least pledging to prosecute the former president, right? And to some extent, there was more of a political pall hanging over the cases. You look at... Which has, by the way, been a criticism. It's a criticism. And, and, these and, cases. I, and, and there's go, some sorry. merit to that criticism, Yeah, no? I go, go further, Poppy. I'd yeah. say it's, it's an entirely valid criticism. Yeah. When, when a prosecutor goes, runs for office attacking an individual that they yeah. intend to prosecute, look, you know, that's fair game for them to pick on. The documents case, the possession of documents at Mar-a-Lago, I see as being in a different class. One, because the proof is relatively straightforward. And two, because the former president is on the record, not, sure, not saying you're going to convict him, but he's on the record saying he possessed the documents. And he's on the record saying that he's aware of their sensitivity. And I just think as a criminal matter, it's just far more straightforward. Look, I, you know, let's not forget about the common sense of this all. Um, yeah, having an indicted standard bearer is not good, particularly if the indictments co- go cro- cut across some of your core values, right? I mean, fiscal responsibility, national security, uh, caring about the country, patriotism, and yet this Donald Trump is undeniably sticky. That said, there is erosion, even in CNN's last poll, I'll invoke a poll, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that people, some Republicans are saying that's too much. 26% say he should not, he should drop out of the race because of the indictment. And it's likely to get worse, not better. That's 26% of Republicans. Correct. And a majority of independents Correct. see that as well. Correct. Says a lot. Did you point at me because I was supposed to raise the uh-huh. Is that like a, <laughs> yes. I raised the roof? No, I, I was pointing at me because I was hoping they'd show the picture of you in, in, the, in the uniform again. You were because the biggest news today is clearly <laughs> the perfect game. <laughs> no, that I agree with. And that's actually what I want to talk to you. Stay with us. Yes. We have a lot more to get to on this type of stuff. But I think we've got some Yankees fans at the table and baseball fans at the table for only the 24th time in nearly 150 years. Baseball fans witnessed perfection. Este Uri Ruiz stands in his way. Grounded to third. Donaldson has it. There it is. Perfection for Domingo Herman. That is Yankees pitcher Domingo Herman. Set down all 27 Oakland A's he faced last night in dominant fashion, throwing only 99 pitches. We call that the Maddox on his way to immortality. He's only the fourth Yankee to throw a perfect game and the first pitcher to do so since the King, Felix Hernandez, with Seattle Mariners back in 2012. CNN sports correspondent Carolyn Mano joins us now. Um, but this is great. Like, I, yeah. I woke up this morning and after day after day after day of looking at my phone alerts about the Yankees angry most mornings when I wake up <laughs> very, very early. Um, I was thrilled. Can't get enough of it. Why? Well, I feel bad being out here because I know John Avalon is grinning from ear to ear and probably wanted to tell the story himself. But what's special about this is that Herman has had a really up and down year. I mean, his last outing was completely abysmal. And so to hear him say that he thought that this could be a possibility early on in this game is really surprising. But on his mind was his uncle, who he was really close with, who passed away on Monday. And he said that he had been really emotional in the clubhouse this week. He dedicated this game to him. And it was just Perfection. The Yankees' ace was completely masterful. I mean, he retired every Oakland batter in an 11-0 win for the Yankees. 72 of his 99 pitches were for strikes. You could see the 30-year-old really picking up steam as the game went on. Mixed in 51 curveballs, 30 fastballs, 17 changeups, a sinker. The crowd was on its feet. He said he felt a kind of pressure that he has never felt in this last inning. The key, he said, was not to overthrow, just stay within his range. So much pressure. 
but so rewarding. And as John Avalon knew, so I, I think just wants to comment on this. Um, you know, it, we'll it's, allow it. it's crazy <laughs> that the Yankees have been so good and so bad. And when they need pitching, they don't get it. And when they don't need pitching, they get it for right. a game. We actually scored runs. We. The Yankees <laughs> actually <laughs> scored runs last night. No, this is us. This yeah. is oh, us. I'm sorry. Yeah, we this we are. It's everybody. <laughs> no problem. I mean, this is Don Larson, <laughs> David Cohn, David Wells, and tonight, last night. And look, yes, it's against, it's against Oakland. Um, but my kids waking up this morning are going to be thrilled. They've never seen perfection. We don't. We haven't had it in recent years so much. Yeah. So Look, this worst is offense in the league, but it doesn't matter, especially for a guy like this who has had such a tough time this year, facing a suspension for a little bit of resin, coming back, mm-hmm. having terrible outings, and to see this moment. I mean, his team just rallying yeah, around him, him for him to be able to hold on to it till the very end. It just like it made you smile. It's so good. I, right. I don't think it made you smile. I think it made God smile. <laughs> Remember the scrappy upstart third place New York Yankees. We need this. 27 world championships is just not, not enough. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Not what I love not about sports in baseball in particular all. is the very like contained and careful Elliot Williams, the prosecutor who isn't going to go outside of the lane or be hyperbolic. <laughs> Invoking God. does exactly yeah. that. Yeah. And that's why we love sports. You know, and just, that's why just the Yankees. Just put it out there. Just, you know, God yeah. is a Yankees fan. Keep, I just keeps, the, I, keeps the kid in us alive. I don't make the rules, Phil. I don't. This is fun. This is really fun. And it was great. That's a great story. Carolyn Mantle, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The U.S. Coast Guard making a grim discovery, finding presumed human remains within the wreckage of the imploded Titan submarine. We have new details from that investigation ahead. And Vladimir Putin speaking in Moscow this morning as questions remain about the whereabouts of one of his top generals following that revolt against the Kremlin. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. One of Russia's top generals who reportedly knew about that mercenary rebellion over the weekend in advance is apparently missing this morning. CNN asked the Kremlin about General Sergei Surovkin and where he was. They told us no comment. Just yesterday, the New York Times reported that he knew that the plot about the plot, as well as U.S. intelligence knowing and trying to figure out if he actually helped plan it. There have been reports from Russian military bloggers and journalists that the general has not been seen in days, that he might be under interrogation, and that he hasn't been in contact with his family. Nick Robertson has this reporting. He's tracking the latest developments, and he joins us now. Nick, CNN also reached out to the Russian defense ministry. Is that right? Uh, We did, and they said they can't speak about it. No comment were the words that the spokesman gave. Uh, Today, we're expecting President Putin to speak to a business development forum in Russia. Um, I think we can look at this as another Kremlin-esque victory lap, where Putin does a victory lap for a victory didn't have at the weekend, where he claims it. The security services came together. Everyone did marvelously well. The people supported supported him. People supported the Kremlin. The reality is uh, there are big questions out there. not only where the whereabouts of uh, Sergei Sorovikin, who, who knew uh, Prigozhin, the Wagner mercenary boss, when they both served in, uh, in Syria for the Russian military. Sorovikin, uh, Prigozhin back then was providing services for the Russian military. Sorovikin was a, a Russian military commander in Syria. They knew each other back then. Uh, in fact, uh, Prigozhin thought Sorovikin was one of the best, if not the best general, the only one worthy of a story, a star in the Russian military. But this is where the mystery deepens 
over the weekend, uh, the last we've seen, and you're seeing him here now, is Sorovikin speaking to the camera, looking incredibly uncomfortable, appearing perhaps to read from a prompter or a message held up in front of him, telling uh, Prigozhin to stand down. Um, <clears throat> this is, uh, you know, it's sort of questionable at, at best, and it becomes more questionable when you realize a second senior Russian officer made a similar on-camera plea to Prigozhin, uh, Prigozhin at the same time. Um, this guy was the deputy head of the Russian military intelligence. And guess what? They're both filmed against a very similar background. The wall looks almost identical. Mm. Uh, so it just raises more questions. Were they under duress? Were they being held when they made those features? And of course, the whereabouts of Sorovakin right now. I mean, let's face it, these guys don't always appear on camera all over the place. But, Sor but Sorovakin in that video looked under duress. And he is, and he is somebody who uh, strongly been rumored to sort of be fairly close to Prigozhin. Prigozhin certainly thought he was. Wow. Nick, thank you very much for the update this morning. All right, crews have recovered what they believe to be human remains from the site of the Titan submersible wreckage. The Coast Guard releasing a statement yesterday saying the remains were part of the debris and evidence crews brought back from the seafloor. A ship delivered pieces of the submersible to a pier in Newfoundland, Canada. Now, five people died last week when it, quote, catastrophically imploded on a trip to see the sunken Titanic. CNN's Paul Newton is live in Ottawa this morning. Paul, you've been covering this story. What do we know about the latest in that ongoing, I think, recovery and investigation? You know, Phil, we found out so much yesterday, and obviously the headline for the families is these presumed human remains, which I will say that the U.S. Coast Guard says that U.S. medical professionals will now conduct a formal analysis. No doubt, Phil, you know, in equal measure, uh, a grim finding, uh, but one that may bring a sense of relief to the families who are trying to figure out exactly what happened, and crucially, if their family members knew what was going on and if they suffered. Uh, all really, really difficult questions for the friends and family. But again, there are multiple investigations underway. And to that end, we saw those large pieces of debris from the Titan come ashore in St. John's. As a follow-up as well, the U.S. Coast Guard com commented, but so did the Canadian Transportation Safety Board. I want you to take a look at what they said late yesterday evening in a release. They say their investigators have finished collecting relevant documents and completed the preliminary interviews with those on board that support the vessel Polar Prince. You'll remember that was the mother ship to Titan. The investigation team has taken possession of the vessel's voyage data recorder, which has been sent to the TSB engineering laboratory here in Ottawa for further analysis. Uh, Phil, they also uh, say that the key here is those pieces of debris that were brought up um, by the ROV, the remote operated vehicle, that they have inspected those, they've cataloged those, but now they are in possession of the U.S. Coast Guard. What does all this mean? Multiple investigations. I want to be clear that the Transportation Safety Board is only talking about safety, trying to figure out what happened, making sure it doesn't happen again. In par parallel, perhaps, criminal investigations, both on this side of the border in Canada, but also the United States. But as I say, Phil, a, a day which was good news for all the investigators involved, really hard work there, and yet one that really the grim findings really bring it home for the families. Profound grief there. Yeah, no question about it. Paul Newton, thanks so much. Well, Madonna is postponing her world tour as she's now recovering from a, quote, serious bacterial infection. We're going to have the latest on her condition coming up next. This morning, music icon Madonna is being forced to postpone her world tour due to a health scare. Her manager said on social media that she spent several days in the ICU battling 
a serious bacterial infection. A source says she is now out of the ICU. That's good news. And she's recovering. Meg Terrell joins us now with more. Glad to hear she's on the mend, but really scary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't have a lot of details about what happened to Madonna. We know that it was on Saturday that she developed this infection and went to the ICU, uh, as you said, you know, on her road to recovery. And her manager saying on Instagram they expect her to make a full recovery. So that's good news. Um, But without knowing a ton of details, some of the experts I've been talking with, doctors in infectious diseases, note that It is one of the most common reasons to go to the ICU, a severe bacterial infection. This is something that happens relatively frequently. It does happen more in people who are elderly or have underlying health conditions or are immunocompromised. And the word that kept coming up, every doctor I spoke with was sepsis. And so that is something that a severe infection can lead to. It's a life-threatening reaction to that infection. It can cause dangerous drops in blood pressure. It can cause your organs to shut down. So that is a concern that maybe this is possibly what happened. We don't have the information, Uh, but obviously going to the ICU means it was extremely uh, serious and potentially life-threatening. You know, you mentioned her manager saying that there would be a, she would have a full recovery. And again, with the caveat that we don't know a lot of the specifics here, which is exactly why I'm going to ask you specific questions. But (laughs) I do think that if you're reading this story and you're seeing kind of the dynamics that led to the ICU, you're sitting there saying, this sounds terrible. Right. Is full recovery in the types of infections when you were talking to experts, something that is normal, something that is usually what happens. Yeah, you know, they noted there can be a broad array of reactions to something like this, depending on the person, depending on the circumstances of infection. They said some people do have a full recovery in days to weeks. Other people still don't get back to their baseline at a year after being hospitalized in the ICU. So it really depends on the person. Uh, So everybody obviously is really rooting for Madonna. She's such a, she's been such a picture of health. Mm. Like she exercises a lot, clearly, and so hopefully that is all going in her favor as she fights this off. Thank you, Meg. Thanks, guys. All right, well, Bud Light says it's ready to move on after slumping sales and a very significant recent controversy, how it plans to do just that. Also, President Biden laying out Bidenomics, right? He says the media came up with the term, but now they're embracing it. What does it actually mean? The details ahead. President Biden pitching what he is calling Bidenomics to American voters, a set of economic policies he hopes will help secure him a second term. Bidenomics is about building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down. And there are three fundamental changes that we decided to make with the help of the Congress and been able to do it. First, making smart investments in America. Second, educating and empowering American workers to grow the middle class. And third, promoting competition to lower costs to help small businesses. Let's bring in our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. It's really interesting. It now has the name, sort of how Obamacare got the name. This is Bidenomics, but it is meant to be the opposite of Reagan-esque trickle-down. That's right. Building the middle class from the middle out and the bottom up and really focusing on that part of the economy. And that's, that's the way they've been framing it. And the president yesterday saying, rightly, 13, more than 13 million jobs have been added since he's been in office. There is record low African-American unemployment, record low unemployment rate for Hispanic Americans, and a record labor force participation for women. The president saying half of the labor force are women and two-thirds of the smarts was a little uh, Joe Biden (laughs) humor there. But um, all of these things are true. And, And the White House this week put together this sort of this framing of it, average job creation per month to show just what's been happening in the in the rock and roll job market that we have right now. Now, of course, it's distorted a little bit. I was just going to say COVID. COVID 
hit here. And so millions yeah. of jobs are lost. And then the economy Not bounced apples back. Apples. Right. The economy bounced back and millions have been added. But when you <clears> look, <throat> you look at the job creation we've had, we've had a very, very strong job market. So on that, the White House is definitely right. I think it's so interesting that the numbers tell the story, but the majority of the people aren't buying the story. That's right. So you look at these, you look at these investments, once in a generation investments over the past couple of years, infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure there, the semiconductor industry, really much needed advances in, in, in there, clean energy credits, high speed internet access, lower costs for seniors. And then you look at the polling. And so there's this disconnect. And I think that's why they're trying to brand Bidenomics and go out on the road and really sell it here. And one of the reasons I think that it doesn't resonate is because inflation is the thing that every week people are still feeling. Inflation is down 11 months in a row. But this is year on year. Consumer prices from uh, this is May, I think. Still prices are up from last year and people feel that. And so that is the thing that they have to overcome to sell this. Interesting with the inflation picture like this and people not thinking he's doing a great job in the economy. They're still pushing economy as a huge focus right. for him it's right now. It's true. You know, and presidents get too much credit and too much blame. Of course. So when, you know, when you're trying to take credit for one part of the economy, you're going to take the blame for other parts. So we'll see how the White House tries to sell it. They've got a, a long yes. <laughs> runway here they before do. the election. Thank you, Roman. You're welcome. Very much. Phil. All right. The CEO of Anheuser-Busch says the company is ready to move forward after boycotts over its partnership with a trans influencer tanked its sales. Now, the beer giant launched a new ad campaign yesterday. You're seeing some of it here, focusing on the people who help make the company's beer. Bud Light lost its top spot in the market in May after partnering with and sending trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney a personalized Bud Light can. CNN business politics correspondent Vanessa Yurkiewicz is here. Uh, Vanessa, I've been fascinated by the business element of the story and the very real tangible impact uh, this has had on the business of Anheuser-Busch, on Bud Light specifically. The CEO saying they're ready to move forward. How? So this is the CEO of Anheuser-Busch, Brendan Whitworth, trying to move the conversation away from the controversy and back to the beer and the people that make the beer. 65,000 employees that help to bring Bud Light to Americans across the country. Uh, This controversy really had financial impacts on the company and some scary impacts. There were bomb threats and harassment again against employees at breweries. Uh, sales of Bud Light tanked uh, 24% in the week ending June 3rd. And Bud Light is no longer the best-selling beer in America, a title they've held for many decades. So the CEO went on uh, CBS Mornings and talked about how he plans to move the company forward. Listen. But as we move forward, um, you know, we want to focus on what we do best, which is brewing great beer for everyone, uh, listening to our consumers, being humble and listening to them, uh, making sure that we do right by our employees, take care uh, and support our partners, and ultimately make an impact in the communities that we serve. And part of that support is financial support to all of the people, all of the distributors, all of the farmers that are helping to bring Bud Light to America's tables. And part of this is giving, actually, distributors about 20 to 50 cents per case because of the loss in revenue that they're seeing, including to help support them on fuel costs uh, and also really looking to beef up their marketing around the employees, trying to move the conversation away from the controversy. But this has lingered for months now. This wasn't something that happened on social media and stayed there. This has had significant impacts on the companies and people on both sides, conservatives and the LGBTQ community are both upset with the company, saying that they haven't done enough in their respective ways. 
I know you can't separate the cultural from the business, but I find yeah. it from a business perspective to be completely fascinating because I feel like we've seen things like this happen and it doesn't have a tangible yeah. bottom line impact. It sometimes. becomes like a kind of a hot thing on Twitter and then kind of, to your point, fizzles out. This had a tangible impact. Uh, they're trying to recover from it. That's Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Chinese spy balloon that floated over the U.S. earlier this year and was shot down was actually carrying American-made equipment to spy on Americans. Also, philanthropist Melinda French Gates now focusing and putting a lot of money behind getting more women elected to public office. She joins us to tell us about the fight and who she's supporting. Well, sometimes I vote Republican, sometimes Democratic. I'm a very independent voter, and I don't want to be pegged as one or the other. First, let me say public office is really important to have more women and people of color in state legislatures, in local city councils, and also at the federal level. Because when you get women and people of color in these state houses, they make new policies for society. They change society. So that is philanthropist Melinda French Gates. She's, of course, a co-founder of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the world's largest nonprofits. That foundation has given away more than $70 billion in grants. A longtime advocate for women and girls, she is now focusing on getting more women elected to public office. French Gates explains why in a recent op-ed, quote, only one in three state legislatures in the U.S. is a woman, and at the federal level, it's closer to one in four. There is evidence that women govern differently, working more collaboratively across party lines and introducing legislation on issues that have historically gone unaddressed. I spoke with her yesterday about those efforts, also her concerns about AI and life now after her very public divorce from Bill Gates. Here's part of our conversation. So you start this op-ed in Time writing, in 1976, Annabelle Clement O'Brien, known as the first lady of Tennessee politics, ran for office on the slogan, a woman's place is in the House and the Senate, too. Why is so much of your effort and your money going to getting more women elected? Well, because I believe women should have their full power and influence in the United States. And in 2019, I made a billion dollar commitment to ensure that really starts to happen more with more momentum. And I'm just seeing that we aren't there yet. You know, too often we have decisions being made for women, not by women. Mm -hmm. And as she said, and also as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, I believe women should be every place the decisions are being made. And that's just, we're just not there yet as a country. What's interesting about your effort is you're really keenly focused on state legislatures. Why? Well, I'm focused on making sure that women have the rightful place at all levels of governing. But state legislators are particularly important. There are 7,000 seats at the legislative level at states. They control $2 trillion in resources, and they make really important policies and laws that affect everyone in their state. So really focusing there where there's so many seats, but also for those women who do want to go on and be in the halls of Congress. It's a great training ground for that. Democrats and Republicans, you want to help across parties? Of course. We need our government to represent all of us. And we have different points of view, depending on on what state you're in, depending on your political leanings. So absolutely, both sides of the aisle. So former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney was quite blunt speaking in New York this week. Here's what she said. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where 
we're electing idiots. <laughs> and um, and so I, I don't look at it through the lens of like, you know, is this what I should do or what I shouldn't do? I look at it through the lens of how do we elect serious people? And I think electing serious people can't be partisan. I'm wondering if you agree, if you think that electing more women helps solve that problem. I think we need to make sure that everyone in this country's voice is represented. So whether that's a female, whether that's a male, and we have to realize we just aren't there yet. One in three state legislators are women. One in four are women in Congress. And yet we're 50% of the population. How can we have 16 million black women in this country, yeah. but zero black senators. So we know that point of view isn't being represented, and we need to do more to make sure that women are represented. I, I obviously couldn't help but notice you wrote this. This was published really at the one-year mark of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Was that a coincidence? Not at all a coincidence. I mean, to have a law on the books for almost 50 years around women's reproductive rights and then have it rolled back. And when you really go and talk to and re do the research about what do Americans believe, they believe that law should be in place. Yeah. So to me, it was a decision, again, where a decision made for women, not by women. We should never roll back a law like that that has to do with women's health. That's a very private, hard, emotional decision. The government shouldn't be involved and hasn't been involved in 50 years. So why would we change that? This reminded me of something you said a long time ago when I, when I spoke to you. You said that your mother taught you, set your own agenda or someone else will. Does all of this really stem from that? Set your own agenda or someone else will. Yes, because the agenda being set by the United States is being set by a group of people that doesn't represent all of us. And what we know is that women, when they come into halls of power, they introduce new pieces of legislation that have historically not been there because they have a different lens on society. And so this is about making sure we set the agenda for all the American people. Our democracy should represent us, and it does not today. So in all of my years of interviewing you, you have never endorsed publicly. Am I right, a candidate? I think that's right. Does this change? Does that change now, Melinda? No, I, I have given personal resources and continue to give personal resources to many candidates on both sides of the aisle. But I don't endorse a specific person. But can I ask office. you why, if you're you're really putting a lot more money and energy behind politics and getting women elected and behind causes that you're passionate about, Roe versus Wade being overturned as an example, why not publicly endorse if there are candidates in this next cycle that you think are necessary in office? Because I vote in any election on both sides of the aisle. Sometimes I vote Republican, mm. sometimes Democratic. I'm a very independent voter, and I don't want to be pegged as one or the other. I think that the best policy is made when we reach across the aisle. And so I think if I come out for a particular candidate, they're going to say, oh, she always supports Republicans or she always supports a Democrat. And that's just not true. So many people are focused on artificial intelligence now, and you've been warning for years, not just about what is ahead with AI, but about bias built into AI. And you've equated it to the bias built into the Constitution, right? And who was mm -hmm. the Constitution written by? How nervous are you that that could be 
uh, playing out again when it comes to AI? I'm very nervous because we don't have enough women, again, who are computer scientists and who have expertise in artificial intelligence. And without that, we will bake bias into the system. Again, the system needs to take all people's points of view in and see society and, quite frankly, see the world writ large as it is. When you have women at any of these places, when you're creating something, when you're making this decision, when you're setting a law, you're bringing that perspective of society that is just so vitally important. You have, uh, Melinda, described this moment in your life as incredibly joyful. Um, so many uh, people in America and around the world have gone through painful divorce. Can you talk a little bit about your journey and finding this joy? Mm, I think, you know, you have to look for it every day. And so even when you go through a painful time, which I did for several years, you you gather these moments of joy, joy during the day and then you reflect on them at the end of the week. And so I happen to be in a situation now in life where, you know, I have a granddaughter, my three children are out of the house now. And so I just really surround myself with family and friends who bring me a lot of energy and joy so that when I do go out in the world and do this kind of work or I travel to places that are very difficult, um, I can lean into that joy and lean into that network of family and friends that support us. I think, Poppy, um, we talked about this a little yesterday after the interview, and then I'll acknowledge candidly, I went back and was watching the feed in our system. Um, to, to, <laughs> to, just because I, I was very interested in the, the actual interview itself. But you mentioned it yesterday, and I want to follow up on it, because your perspective on the non-endorsements, yeah, particularly when you take a very straightforward line on Roe versus Wade. Um, and I've seen a lot of people with a lot of money in politics try and strike this middle ground. And within a year or two, their grand efforts have completely faded away. Why? What was your Why doesn't she endorse? I think you heard her say there because she's not just a Democrat, not just a Republican. She's an independent, but you could still endorse certain candidates. I right. think she doesn't want to alienate people. I think she believes that she can make change without publicly saying who, not just with money, but with resources, with the writing that, that she does. But it was really interesting. Um, it's just been fascinating over the last decade to watch her evolution yeah. in terms of such support of women and girls, and now really in politics. And as you heard, the timing of this on the one-year mark when Roe was overturned was, was not a coincidence at all. I think you're going to see and hear a lot more from Melinda Gates on this front. Maybe one day she will endorse. We'll see. We'll see. I interview. did ask, are oh. you going to run? Is she going to run? No, never. Not a chance. Never. I, I, yeah, that seemed pretty obvious, at least <laughs> implicitly. All right, great interview, Poppy. Thank you. All right, it was a terrifying emergency landing in Charlotte where a Delta flight touched down without its landing gear. We're going to show you that moment, what it was like for the passengers inside. Wow. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Russia's president trying to show he's in full control. He's showing he's a man of the people. The rebellion or the mutiny has been quelled, and he's back in charge. Questions are now mounting about the whereabouts of Sergei Surovikin. He reportedly hasn't been seen since Friday. If he's been arrested because he was involved with Prigozhin and Wagner, that's not good news for this general. This is the worst 
travel experience in my lifetime. The worry is whether airlines can handle the July 4th holiday rush. Expect delays, expect cancellations. I just don't want to be in here anymore. I'm just so tired of this airport. There's no question that with all of these storms, it's created a lot of challenges for the system. President Biden was questioned on the White House lawn about whether he was involved or aware of a text Hunter allegedly sent to a Chinese business partner in 2017. Were you involved? No, I wasn't. No. There were certain steps we weren't allowed to take that could have led us to President Biden. The U.S. Coast Guard now says presumed human remains have been recovered from the wreckage of the Titan submersible. The Horizon Arctic retrieved debris, in fact, large pieces of debris. And I see plenty of wiring and things like that, so there probably is an awful lot there for them to go on. something like this in my career, you know, something that I'm going to remember forever, be part of history. Um, so exciting. For him to get that is just fantastic. Best story of the morning, and we'll get to that in a moment because our friend Phil Mattingly is obsessed with it. And you didn't because, even say But everybody watch should it. be obs- Okay, first off, not fair. <laughs> West Coast game in Oakland. Yankees haven't exactly been fun to watch over the course of the last several days. Domingo Herman, the pitcher who pitched the perfect game, hasn't exactly been fun to watch over the course of the last hey. several starts. But it was awesome to wake up to this morning. I love this story for so many reasons, including what motivated him to have the perfect game. He just lost his uncle two days ago. So it's a great story. We'll get into all of that. Also a lot ahead this hour, but here's where we begin with the 4th of July holiday travel rush that is kicking off today. The Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says it could be a big test for airlines after the chaos that we have seen in recent days. Already we're seeing nearly 600 delays and more than 350 flight cancellations in the United States, and it's just 7 a.m. United Airlines says it's all hands on deck as it works to get out of a multi-day scheduling meltdown, canceling more flights than any other airline since Saturday. Days of storms and other problems have left thousands of people stranded. Let's get to our Pete Montina at Reagan National Airport. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Bobby. You know, things are looking better today, although we are not out of the woods just yet. In fact, this holiday travel rush is only just beginning. The FAA says 52,000 flights are scheduled to fly today through U.S. airspace. That is the biggest number we will see going into the July 4th rush, even though United Airlines is the one that is really struggling. You mentioned it's canceled more than any other, more flights than any other airline in the last few days, canceling 2,500 flights, delaying another 7,000. Now remember that United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby put a lot of the blame for this on the Federal Aviation Administration and its shortage of air traffic controllers. But Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is really swiping back at that. He does admit that there is a shortage of controllers, but he says United really needs to look at the mirror here at its own problems. United Airlines has some internal issues they need to work through. They've really been struggling this week, even relative to other U.S. airlines. Uh, But where we do agree is that there need to be more resources for air traffic control. The staffing levels there are not at the level I want to see there. They don't leave us with a lot of cushion. If you have a few people calling sick or if you have an unusual event, it really spreads the system thin. And so uh, we need to see higher staffing levels there. 
Passengers for United have been waiting in lines for hours to try and get on new flights. In some cases, they are not able to find a seat until Monday. United Airlines just put out its first statement acknowledging this meltdown since it began last weekend. It says that pilots, flight attendants, customer service agents are all working tirelessly to try and make it so that its system can recover from this slow motion meltdown. It says that we will be ready for the holiday travel rush, although now is the real test. Remember, United Airlines plan to serve Five million passengers, the most passengers it has seen over the July 4th period since 2019. TSA anticipates screening 2.8 million people alone tomorrow here and at airports across the country. That's the biggest number we have seen since the pandemic downturn, Poppy. Hey, Pete, Poppy and I were trying to figure out, we, we showed this video of uh, this terrifying moment, plane landing uh, with its known landing gear up in Charlotte. As you qualify as my only pilot friend, um, how this actually works, like the mechanics of what happened yesterday as a pilot, what did you see, what had to have been done to actually make this happen safely? The good news in watching that video, you can see the training of the pilots on full display. They were able to come in on one of the runways there in Charlotte without the nose landing gear down. They told air traffic control they had an unsafe indication. They did a flyby and then went back around and came in and landed with the nose landing gear still up. It is a testament to the engineering of the airplane, how strong it is. You can see it came down in one piece. No big deal. The crew, the pilots, the passengers, 96 of them on board this Delta flight, a Boeing 717 evacuated on those emergency slides. All is well that ends well. They did a pretty picture-perfect job here, although the runway had to be closed for a while, sort of compounding on those delays and cancellations we have seen in Charlotte, which is a huge hub for American Airlines. Pete, could you do that? <laughs> I've never done it. I hope to never do it. Yeah. Maybe I could. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. It's a pretty talented <laughs> pilot, folks. Uh, thanks. Pete Montanis, great perspective. Appreciate it. All right, there's a mystery in Moscow this morning. One of, the, one of Russia's top generals, who reportedly knew that mercenaries were planning to launch an armed rebellion, is apparently missing. A CNN asked the Kremlin about his whereabouts. They told us no comment. Just yesterday, the New York Times reported that General Sergei Sorovkin knew about the plot, and U.S. intelligence was trying to figure out if he actually helped to plan it. So the Moscow Times is reporting that he is under arrest. They are citing Russian defense sources. But we have not been able to independently verify that. There have been reports from Russian military bloggers and other journalists that the general hasn't been seen in days and that he might be under interrogation and that he hasn't been in contact with his family. Nick Payton Walsh joins us live this morning uh, from Kiev with more. Nick, this general was once, for a brief period of time, but once the top commander of the war in Ukraine. Absolutely, and considered pretty competent and effective when he had that role. Sergei Surovikin uh, was demoted and put in charge of the Air Force with a deputy role in the Ukraine war after people considered uh, over the winter that the, the fight around Kherson had gone against the Kremlin. Now, he's also one of the few commanders that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner rebellion leader, spoke uh, complementarily of. Now, he was last seen on Friday, as this rebellion got underway, appearing somewhat uncomfortable on a video, essentially telling everyone to stand down, go back to their bases, and to not continue the march on Moscow. He's not been seen since. Now, it's important to point out, too, that, for example, Valery Garasimov, the chief of staff of Russia's uh, war here in Ukraine, he's also not been seen in public, too. But Surovikin has been the subject of this morass now 
of reports suggesting in the New York Times that perhaps he had foreknowledge. Uh, I've been told by European intelligence officials that there are hints some of the Russian military establishment may have had foreknowledge, but also to reports suggesting perhaps he's been arrested, perhaps he's been interrogated. There are other Russian commentators saying actually, no, he's okay. The issue really, though, is until we see him healthy and in public, this speculation will continue to mount. And also, too, frankly, this suspicion will hang over Surovikin probably indefinitely. Now, this is the beginning, I think, of what many observers thinking would be the fallout of the weekend, that there's suspicion in the Russian military elite, in Putin's inner circle, about who knew what, some of this perhaps planted in the Western media to obviously uh, ho hobble uh, Russia's chain of command. Uh, but this will continue to play out. The fear possibly of purges or turmoil will continue to escalate. And it's going to make command and control for the war in Ukraine, for Vladimir Putin, increasingly hard. They're doing very badly in terms of decision making so far. But if indeed what we're seeing now is generals turning on each other, pointing the finger, disappearing, having to appear in public looking healthy just to prove that they're okay and still in their job. That's going to be a massive distraction from the war in itself. And remember too, it doesn't suggest that Vladimir Putin has a strong grip on power if we have all this doubt about where his key commanders indeed are. Poppy? Mick Payton Walsh, live from Kiev. Thank you very much. Well, we're joined now by CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger. He's also a White House and national security correspondent for the New York Times. David, I think it's important here to take people behind the scenes in terms of what we identify in a Kremlin response versus maybe what a normal person would read. Right. When the Kremlin is talking about just speculation when they're asked about the whereabouts of a, of a general, when the uh, Ministry of Defense is not commenting, when they're asked about a whereabouts of a prominent general, my alarm bells go up immediately. Right. Yours? It, there's no such thing as a free no comment because no comments frequently tell you almost as much as a comment would. So the first thing they did in uh, responding to the time story written by, by my colleagues was that it was speculation, right? Um, that's not exactly a denial. And then they wouldn't say where he was. So why is this so critical to them? Because part of the Putin argument as he has tried to recover from the weekend has been to say the people were behind me and my military was behind me. Well, this suggests that one of his senior generals was not, and it would be hard to believe that they would stage this with just one general. Isn't that the key question? Right. Is how many of these Russian generals, Russian military heads, knew what Prigozhin was planning? How many knew, and how many just made sure they were out of town? I mean, the remarkable thing is that Prigozhin's um, force, only, what, six or 7,000 of them, made its way unopposed down a main highway toward Moscow and made it within, what, 125, 150 yeah. miles of the capital, having run into very little opposition, a little bit of air uh, bombing, and they took out. It's clear that they killed a number of, of, uh, can, of Russian Can I just ask you, before we move on to this other story that's fascinating this morning, on the Chinese spy balloon, you know, uh, Bianca Goldriga with us this week brought up the comparison to Erdogan in 2016 and, you know, what happens when you are challenged or threatened in this right. way. And you raised the question of, you know, what is more dangerous right now, a strong paranoid Putin or a weaker paranoid Putin? Right. I think the answer is a weaker paranoid Putin. Right. So Putin was paranoid before this happened. <clears throat> he now has discovered he had really good reason to be paranoid. 
You know? And so at this point, he's trying to do two things, I think. One is establish that he's fully in control. But secondly, if he's feeling cornered, if he's feeling like some of his military has moved against him and that the United States and NATO are going to take advantage of that when they all show up in Vilnius in uh, you know, a week, uh, uh, week and a half's time uh, for the NATO summit, I think he is much more likely to threaten the use of his weapons, to reveal the weapons that he's put in Belarus, nuclear weapons he's put in Belarus, to issue more threats than he would be if he was feeling in a strong position. Well, the, uh, issuing threats has not been something that's he's been hesitant to do to some degree. I, and I understand what you're yeah. saying. There are scales of an escalatory ladder in terms of the threats. Do you feel like more dangerous in a weaker position means, means utilizing or delivering on those threats is more likely? Well, I think you'll see a bunch of steps between now and, God forbid, an actual use. He's threatened. He's never actually moved any nuclear weapons. You know, we haven't seen any activity. That would be sort of the next thing to do to try to spook the United States. Clearly, he feels at this point that not only is the war not going well, but it's beginning to take a toll on his own military. And he can't be seen to lose this because if he loses, if he, if he pulls back, you know, maybe he'd get away with it, maybe not. Now, you made a really good point, Poppy, uh, about President Erdogan. We all thought in 2016 when there was a coup attempt against him. Dion is good point, but yes. Right, right. No, no, co yeah, Take point. it for yourself. That's Don't give it. anybody credit. Right. Um, this is TV, Poppy. That's right. <laughs> Brutal business. It is. It's, it's pretty cutthroat. You think the Russian military is bad, right? <laughs> so... Um, uh, the, the, the key issue here, I think, is that as Putin sort of, you know, heads down this road, we're going to have a lot of different moments where we're going to have to go see whether or not um, he, his activity, his actions have differed dramatically yeah. from what they, what they were before. So far, he's been playing to type. Mm-hmm. We don't know that that's going to, you know, continue right. along and the way. If he follows Erdogan playbook, journal, Erdogan, well, journalists know. in danger, being imprisoned, etc. Right. And Erdogan survived it. And yeah, yeah just got reelected. That's right. Yeah, I, we do want to ask you real quick before uh, we let you go. I don't think we're letting you go. You're actually stuck here with us. <laughs> oh, okay. which is great for us. Um, uh, the Wall Street Journal has a great piece out uh, about the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down by the U.S. Uh, had U.S. components inside of it. Right. And I think your reaction was similar to mine, which is, yeah, no kidding. Right. It's not, I'm not knocking the journal reporting. It's great reporting. Um, but at that point, and I think it underscores one of the very difficult elements that the U.S. is trying to do right now in the whole decouple versus de-risk. How do you blacklist certain things but not other things? What was your Because this was with the it? Iranian drone as yes, well, the, having the, all these U.S. Par- it's, parts. There's components in Russian weapon systems that we've been trying to block off that they've been finding ways around. This is what 30 years of integrated economies bring you, Right. There are U.S. components in, so in Chinese uh, spy balloons. There are U.S. components in Russian missiles. There are Chinese components in U.S. spy satellites. And that is because we have gone to a world over the past 30 years where we thought it really didn't make any difference where it came from. The big difference was that you could get it reliably and at a low price. And now, all of a sudden, post-COVID, as this sort of gathering Cold War ga- uh, happens with, with both the Chinese and the Russians, we're suddenly saying we can't afford to have supply chains like this. Well, we have historic connections that are going to be very hard to disentangle. So the White House can say that we are putting a high fence around a small yard 
and, and just blocking the most high-tech components that would go into Chinese military equipment. But the fact of the matter is, you can't separate all of that out. We have American companies designing chips now to evade the Commerce Department restrictions right. so that they can sell to China. Perfectly legal and understandable. Yeah, I, I want to talk about this for like three hours. Um, you would too. I, I know would you too. would. David Sanger, stick with us. Thank you. Uh, we've got a lot more to come, including my favorite story. Uh, perfection. Perfection. It's perf- were you pointing at me? Yeah, perfection. Thanks, pal. I appreciate it. Every professional athlete strives for the idea of perfection. Rarely is it ever achieved. Wednesday night, Domingo Herman was perfect. Este Uri Ruiz stands in his way. Grounded to third. Donaldson has it. There it is. Perfection for Domingo Herman. All right, here's why this was absolutely awesome. Domingo Herman was only the 24th person ever to throw a perfect game in a major league game. And he did it against a team that hadn't even been no hit since 1991. He owes a lot to his defense. You saw Josh Donaldson there, but especially first baseman Anthony Rizzo. You saw the play right there, made that diving stop in the fifth inning to preserve the history. Now, Herman becomes the first Dominican-born player to retire 27 straight batters in a single game. Also became the fourth Yankee to do it. David Cohn was the last Yankee to throw a perfect game. He did it in 1999, just 88 pitches. A year before that, Boomer, David Wells, pulled it off. And of course, everyone knows, Don Larson threw the only World Series perfect game in 1956. It was game five against the Brooklyn Dodgers. So for context here, how rare is a perfect game? Think about it this way. More than 23,000 games have been played since the last one, when Seattle's Felix Hernandez did it in 2012. Since then, more than 54,000 home runs have been hit. More than 213,000 runs have been scored. There have been more than 407,000 hits. It's rare. Let's put this in the historical conference. Now, according to baseball reference, there have been more than 237,000 games played in the league's 140-plus year history. And again, there have only been 24 of them that have been perfect. That means it only happens once in every 9,876 games. And that, Poppy Harlow, is why it is absolutely the best story in the world today. Do you know I agree with you? I know. Oh, on this one. On most sports stories, I don't. But I love this story for so many reasons. Someone at the table does not. David Sanger, I'm very sorry. Well, it was a fabulous game, but I'm a Red Sox fan. And to see this to see this after 11 years go to the Yankees is just, I mean, that's... Why are we letting him talk? Should we let him talk at this at all? Shouldn't you be banned from this panel? I probably probably should, and maybe at moments. You can't find baseball joy in a perfect game just because of a rivalry. You know, it just tells you what a narrow human being. (laughs) I'm glad you said it. It was pretty fabulous to go watch. Also, from a pitcher who'd not had like a yes. fabulous no. season, yeah, yeah. he gotten shelled his last two outings. Yeah. He had a five ERA. Which is really unbelievable. Really you know, what's so mystifying to me about this is that everyone loves the New York Yankees and <laughs> loves more than that yeah. New York Yankees fans. Yes. and I just think, you well, know, as you noted, scrappy team, hard scrabble, bootstraps, bootstrap, yeah. third place yeah, team with only twenty-seven world championships. What? Yeah. It's the least that <laughs> the universe could do for struggling Yankees fans. Yeah. And, and my and, goodness, and I, do, I do want to point out for for David Sanger's benefit, you know they're 
have only been, you know, Bill Mattingly doing the Bill James breakdown of baseball. I love that just then, right? <laughs> but t- 24 perfect games, four of them Yankees. How does that make you feel? Yeah. That is that is really hard. Pedro Martinez had a lot of <laughs> yeah yeah. He didn't. He actually had zero. Yeah. Also, I, just for clarity, uh, I was doing some quick research you guys and statistics. Should see his screen right um, now. The Red Sox right now are in. Uh, let me check the. Oh yeah. Oh, they're actually in last place. That's right. Yeah, right. I, sure. I had noticed that. Had, yeah. Thanks, Phil, for um, pointing it out. Yeah, they're four and six in their last ten. Yeah. Um, the Orioles, the Blue Jays. I have year. taken. I I have actually just been going back to like look at how like you know. Honus Wagner was like just polishing the Yusmanski right. paraphernalia. Th- thinking, thinking back to like, you have to go to like 1904 to find a game that started off like this way. So I'm, I'm deciding to sink myself into history and forget about the Red Sox for the moment. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a um, rational response. Connie Mack was the manager of the game that you're talking about right wow. now. Wow. He was like wow. a young manager. Oh <laughs> Should we send... Deep. You're in it now. <laughs> we have to go to break, but just because you've gone way over time and the control room's not happy, we're going to send course. you to this break with this epic photo. We do oh. Every hour, I said. Every hour. Our very own. Yeah. There we go. Oh, that's right. That's right. right. There's the Ohio State wow. scholar athlete. Yeah, the Ohio State. I love the wristband. I'm sorry, I do. <laughs> we'll be right back, guys. Stay with us. More CNN this morning to come after the break. There were certain investigative steps that we weren't allowed to take that could have led us to President Biden. And you wanted to take them? We needed to take them. And you weren't allowed to take them? That's correct. That is Gary Shapley, a 14-year IRS veteran who once oversaw the investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden's taxes. And that is Shapley claiming he was then blocked from pursuing leads connected to the president. Shapley told House lawmakers that Hunter Biden used his father as leverage to pressure a Chinese company into paying Hunter Biden. Now, according to this whistleblower, because there was a second unnamed whistleblower and then there's Shapley, a 2017 message said, quote, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Those last three words are key. President Biden yesterday denied that he was present when that text was allegedly sent. Listen. How involved, President Biden, how involved were you in your son's Chinese shakedown text message? Were you sitting there? Were you Definitive no from the president. Let's bring in Ellie Williams, CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor, and Ellie Honig, our CNN senior legal analyst. Ellie, let me just begin with you. Um, there are questions here. Gary Shapley, uh, highly regarded, worked at the IRS for more than a decade, led this investigation at one point, and he's laid out really specific allegations that need to be looked into more. My question to you is the Trump administration and Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions had this stuff, too, and didn't. Charges. Right. So for two plus years, in fact, the Trump administration had the Hunter Biden case, didn't bring any charges. That's important to keep in mind. Among the allegations we've heard, some of them are of no concern to me. Some of them are of legitimate concern. We've heard that there was discussion, dissension within DOJ about what do we charge him with? The IRS agents allegedly wanted to charge more serious crimes. Prosecutors charged less Felon- serious crimes. They wanted felonies, some of that. Yes. 
That happens all the time. That does not bother me. That is a conversation that happens in every U.S. attorney's office every day across the country. That's part of the process. What is legitimate, though, is what we just heard from Mr. Shapley, which is if there were lines of investigation where they were told you cannot go down there, that's an issue. Now, if this was a special counsel scenario, it's not. Special counsel is given a piece of paper when they start saying, here are the outlines of what you're doing. And we don't want them going beyond that. We don't want another Ken Starr scenario. But a normal investigation like this, you don't know where it's going to go. And your job is to follow every lead. And so if it's proven that certain leads were cut off and it was said to this team, no, you can't look down that path. That's a real issue. You know, in another universe in which the world and Congress was more functional and less polarized, this would be a perfect issue for Congress to get to the bottom of. They could have hearings, call leadership of of any agency in, uh, investigate and really look into this. The problem is that Congress itself is such a partisan body. You would not really get any sort of bipartisan agreement as to how to even conduct an investigation like that. But that's really where you'd get to the bottom of something like that. Can you, and I think both of you can help on this. Yeah. Getting inside the room of where I think uh, the core of the dispute is right now, which is the attorney general says, I had nothing to do with any of this. I made very clear that the U.S. attorney that was overseeing this, that had been appointed by President Trump, had all of the resources and all of the ability to bring charges if he wanted to. The whistleblowers, the two IRS officials, are saying they were in a room in a meeting with the U.S. attorney who said he did not have the ability or did not have the freedom, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, to actually do just that. The U.S. attorney has sent a letter to Congress denying that that's what happened or, or putting it in a different way in a room. Yeah. Uh, my sense is that all of these things may be somewhat could be somewhat true in the dynamic of things. But I, I want you to try and break down for people. Somewhat true. It's a little bit implausible to me, to be perfectly blunt, that one U.S. attorney said to another U.S. attorney that the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., said to an individual who was put in place by the former president and was overseeing a case, I can't bring that case. Please don't bring that to Washington, So you don't D.C. think that's something that would happen? Well, I, I think it's a little bit implausible. But at the end of the day, like you said, Phil, we weren't in the rooms and we don't know. And this is the kind of thing that, again, Congress can can get to the bottom of. If there were an actual dispute between various senior officials at the Justice Department, it would probably have been brought back to headquarters and someone there, even if if not the attorney general, maybe he would step out of it, but a senior career official would have been the one to mediate something like that. But the idea that these mid-ish to senior level guys were fighting amongst themselves and one single-handedly quashed an investigation... probably would require a little more investigation. Lawyers do fight within DOJ and lawyers do disagree on what happened. One thing that's really important to keep in mind here is who the most important player is, and that's David Weiss, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, longtime DOJ appointee, served under administrations of both parties, put in that job, U.S. attorney of Delaware, by Donald Trump in 2018, with support of both of Delaware's Democratic U.S. senators. And then when Joe Biden comes in in 2021, New presidents get rid of all 93 U.S. attorneys, but he left David Weiss in place. Two or three total that Joe Biden left in place, John Durham being one of the other ones, and the guy in Chicago who had other corruption cases, left David Weiss in place. So that's really important when we think about what would the incentives be here. Should Weiss testify? I I think he should. I think there's enough legitimate questions that have been raised here that he should get, he should take an oath and, and testify. Even if it's not testify, at least come in and talk to Congress. Like, it doesn't have to be a public hearing under the Klieg lights, but certainly answer questions. Yeah. That's fair game. And that's, if our government's working properly, that's what Congress should actually be doing. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It helps a lot. Appreciate it. All right, the streets near Paris erupting with violence and chaos for a second night. Schools and town halls set on fire after police shot and killed a teen during a traffic stop. Also, Gulf Coast officials this morning warning beachgoers about these deadly rip currents. The safety concerns you need to know. We're live in Fort Myers, Florida. 
Well, it has been a second night of violent protests near Paris erupting over the deadly police shooting of a 17-year-old driver during a traffic stop. Multiple cars, town halls, schools, and police stations were set on fire last night. Angry protesters also shot fireworks at some of what you're hearing uh, and threw stones at police. French, French officials say about 150 people were arrested in all of this. And now France is mobilizing 40,000 police officers and paramilitary to control the country, to patrol the country as more protests and unrest are expected. The French interior minister says the move comes after the 9,000 officers they deployed last night weren't enough to quell the widespread violence. Wow. Well, happening right now, you're looking at live pictures from cities across the country. Milwaukee is on the left, very hazy at this hour. Chicago is on the right. It has been ranked as one of the most polluted cities in the world of late. More than 120 million Americans are under alerts for dangerous air quality as thick waves of smoke from Canadian wildfires smothers the nation. And rip currents on the Gulf Coast have killed at least 11 people in just the last two weeks. That is according to preliminary data from the National Weather Service. The tragic deaths have spanned from Fort Morgan, Alabama to Panama City Beach, Florida. Our Nick Valencia is live in Fort Myers Beach, Florida this morning. Obviously, this got a lot of attention. We talked about the young um, former NFL player who, who was killed in all of this. Now you've got law enforcement officials begging people to pay attention, serious attention to these warnings. Yeah, it is urgent, uh, Poppy. And just to give you a sense of how overwhelmed the Florida officials are here along the Gulf Coast, in Panama City Beach, in the span of 10 days, they received 70 calls for distressed swimmers, over half of them coming on Saturday. It has been a particularly deadly season when it comes to rip currents along the Gulf of Mexico. Panama City Beach, Florida, recording the highest number of rip current beach fatalities in the U.S. this year with seven all occurring within June 15th to June 24th, according to the National Weather Service data. Out here, it can quickly go from extreme happiness to extreme sadness and very, very quickly. No fewer than 11 deaths reported during that period along a stretch of the Gulf of Mexico between Fort Morgan, Alabama and Panama City Beach. The safest place to be when you come to the beach is near a lifeguard. And I will always pump that out, swim near a lifeguard. Officials urging beachgoers to pay attention to the warnings, especially the high hazard double red flag, which means that the water is closed to the public. The double red flag, you won't catch me out here. Bay County Sheriff Tommy Ford posting his frustration with beachgoers online, calling the deaths unnecessary as first responders risk their own lives pulling people out of the water. And even posting these photos online showing the trenches in the sand caused by the rip current saying you say you're a good swimmer an experienced swimmer a competitive swimmer but you are no match for a rip current according to the national weather service rip currents are channeled currents of water that flow away from the shore to deeper water and are present in almost all beaches where waves break while not all rip currents are dangerous the u.s average 71 rip current fatalities from 2013 to 2022, making them the third leading cause of weather-related deaths during that time, killing more people than lightning, tornadoes, or hurricanes. The only things more deadly, heat and floods. With the influx of people and having a roving patrol, uh, these things can't happen. But we still have a guard that's trying to make contact with people, trying to, trying to advise them where the rips are. This comes after former NFL quarterback Ryan Mallett died in an apparent drowning off the coast of the Florida Panhandle. 
And while authorities didn't cite rip currents as the cause of Mallet's death, officials warned beachgoers to be aware of their surroundings while in the water. Sometimes, most often, by the time you realize you're in trouble, it sometimes is often too late. <clears throat> okay, so what do you do if you're caught in a rip current? As hard as it seems to do, you try to relax and swim parallel to the beach and then try to come into the beach at an angle after you're out of the rip current. The one thing, Poppy, that you don't want to do, you probably already know this, is try to swim directly back to shore. It's only going to tire you out and lead and increase the likelihood of you drowning. Poppy? I, I actually think a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that, um, so I'm really glad you, you told us and put up that graphic that you have to sort of swim zigzag right away from it. Yeah, that's right. Nick, thank you. Thanks, very Bobby. much. Yep. Well, President Biden introducing Bidenomics, the agenda he says is responsible for the economy's rebounded success. How it differs from Republican policies that Democrats say failed America. That's coming up next with that great group of people. You're hearing that a lot this week. President Biden betting that his vision for the U.S. economy can help him win a second term. His team has dubbed it Bidenomics. The president explained it yesterday. Building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down. And there are three fundamental changes that we decided to make with the help of the Congress. We've been able to do it. First, making smart investments in America. Second, educating and empowering American workers to grow the middle class. And third, promoting competition to lower costs to help small businesses. Now, there are about two years of public opinion surveys that show that this is a hill to climb for this White House. If you look right there, messaging could be a gamble. 64% of the public disapproves of the president handling of the economy, according to a recent AP uh, door poll. So... What are they doing? Is it going to work? Joining us now, Christine Romans, our business savant, anchor and chief business correspondent, John Avlon, my Yankees brother in hand, CNN <laughs> senior political analyst and anchor, and Natasha Alford, who I should have talked to in the last panel, and we were so nerding out over baseball. And I think next time, just throw something now in my head. Get, it's now very, you get very effective. And last word. No, it was I, a very inspirational story. Also, oh, shout out sure. to Afro-Latinos, because yes. that, that picture First Dominican picture to ever throw Dominican game. Republic. Yeah. So great representation right there. If I, if I keep talking about baseball, you're going to draw me in, and the controller's <laughs> going to come out here and fight. So I, I want to ask about this, though, because... Move aside the fact that I don't think the president's totally sold on Bidenomics, the term, <laughs> which he seems to repeatedly say. But this point here of they have a very real record to point to from a numbers perspective on growth, on jobs, on specific sectors in jobs, on the recovery, on the unemployment rate. And yet you saw the polling we just showed. Is a messaging campaign going to change the game here? Yeah, I mean, messaging is a priority, but whether Bidenomics is the phrase, whether that inspires a sense of confidence or connecting with the everyday American person, I'm not sure if that's it. Um, I think that this this track record, 13 million jobs, the infrastructure investments, uh, the Chips and Science Act, I'm not sure if that's translating to everyday people. And I think that people still have this memory that's stuck on inflation, uh, housing, uh, being difficult to you know find affordable housing, all of these issues that sort of hit close to home. They're struggling with giving Biden credit for solving those issues. But in particular, you've said you think the Biden administration could improve when it comes to black Americans and yeah. focusing specifically on how this agenda helps and will continue to help them. 
Yeah, I, I think it's important to understand that the black middle class only represents a certain portion of the black community at large. So this idea of focusing on the black middle class is important, uh, but for the working class families, right, what are you giving them? And then there, these promises of addressing racial injustice, people are still wondering what happened with the George Floyd Act, right? Even though that's not necessarily President Biden's um, fault, it's uh, people are looking for wins in in terms of the big promises that he made. And, and for many people, it still falls short. I think the shock of the post-COVID economy and inflation is something that people haven't been able to brush off. Mm -hmm. And the White House is trying to show, rightly, these once-in-a-generation investments that have been made, you know, bipartisan infrastructure, chips, all these other things that people will feel eventually. But right now, they still just still remember inflation of last year. And Wrongly or rightly, they put it right on on Biden. Do and, they remember and, it or do they see it mm -mm. when they go to the store? Because four percent is still not. They still awesome. see it. But look, gas prices are down a dollar thirty from last summer, right? right? And all last summer, it was what's going on with gas prices? What's the White House doing about gas prices? And th they have wrestled gas mm -hmm. prices for a variety of reasons have been wrestled lower again. So we've got all the. He got all the blame, but the blame, none of the credit. credit. You know? yeah. And that's just the way. The and that's works. sort of the story of, of this administration with with regard to the economy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it does have to do with repetition. But, you know, when people blame messaging. I think that kind of misses the point. You, I think a lot of the investments that have made You're could a be speechwriter, right? You, you as the as messaging. former speechwriter, I, yeah. I will say, it's, yeah. It's, it's, defensive it's, there, it's not just, you know, you, it, there's, there's certain, you know, it's not just the messaging problem. It's usually about substance and meeting people where they live. That's why economies stick. The, the inflation is sticky, even though it's right. gone down. And it's also why these transformational investments they've made. And that's not hyperbole. You, know, you look at the impact of the CHIPS Act and infrastructure. Yeah. That stuff. can do more right. to rebuild the middle class, which is one of the most urgent things in American economy and politics there is in the long run, but it doesn't necessarily translate to today. So you got to make that Just case. Just final word, Christine. I thought this was so interesting in this um, Washington Post op-ed this morning. The shift also has to do with who Biden is. His longstanding alarm over the Democratic Party's alienation from mm -hmm. working and middle-class voters. You've been on a lot of calls with the White House. Yeah. Is this also about who the president is and trying to understand how can this be that we have as a party this disconnect from these folks? They just keep trying, you know, in these White House calls and White House, keep, they just keep trying to point out that from the very beginning, Joe Biden has been trying to lower lower prices for all Americans, working Americans, and really get back to the kitchen table, you know, not the big tax rates and, you know, just the kitchen table economics. And they keep trying to make that connection. And so far, the polls would say they haven't made that connection. He was yet. running about against Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, and talking about the middle class going back to the 1980s, yeah. the 80s. Bingo. Yeah. The consistent thread here. Can I ask you? Theoretical doesn't always work. It's true. They have said from the day they walked into office, equity is at the center of our agenda. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they've delivered in part in whole some element in two and a half years on that kind of broad idea. I think it matters what you value, right? If you appreciate, um, you know, the Supreme Court nomination, if you appreciate this record number of judges that are in place, mm -hmm. if you pay attention to those things, then you would see that, yes, there's a promise delivered. But again, in terms of everyday people's lives, right, some of those appointments, um, how does that matter uh, when it comes to changing police culture, when it comes to hiring, when it comes to protecting affirmative action, which right now is a, we'll could know, we'll be know devastated, today. right? So, in terms of everyday people's lives, I think that, you know, there's there's still some promises that haven't been fulfilled. Thank you guys very much. Natasha, Christine, John, appreciate it. All right. Tonight, NFL and NBA stars are set to clash in an epic golf match. Who will win on the big green? That's next. Plus. This is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. Here we go. 
The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame honoring hip-hop's 50th anniversary. Daryl DMC McDaniels will be a part of the iconic event. Guess what? He's going to join us live on how impactful his music has been over the years. And John Avalon is playing drums on the desk and can't wait for that. It's going to be fun. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's the NBA versus the NFL tonight, not on the court or on the field, on the greens and fairways. NBA All-Stars Steph Curry and Klay Thompson are set to face off against Super Bowl champs Patrick Mahomes and Ohio's own Travis Kelsey in a charity golf match. The iconic sports duos are pairing up to play in the match, airing on TNT at 6.30 Eastern. CNN sports anchor Andy Scholes joins us live from Vegas in the best assignment in this company right now. <laughs> Andy, totally. this is going to be a fun <laughs> match. And what's great about the match is not just the golf, but the guys are mic'd. Like, the, the back and forth, the trash talk is wonderful. Oh, it, it absolutely is. It brings a whole other element to the match. when They've got an earpiece in the entire time they're trying to play. But this is the first time ever we're going to have football versus basketball here in the match. You couldn't ask for better duos, right? You got the reigning Super Bowl champs, Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, going up against the Splash Brothers, four-time champs, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. Now, Steph and Pat have actually played in the match before they lost, so they really want to win this time around. And I got the chance to talk to all the guys last night. They all agreed. Uh, that Travis Kelsey is definitely going to be able to hit the ball the furthest. Now, where if it goes where he wants it to is another question, but uh, I posed the question to them, you know, who's got the advantage? Is it the football players or the basketball players? Shooters and golf, it's, 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 it's about the same thing. You know? we, see, we see the course, we can visualize shots, but we're just going to have fun. Good thing I can't block. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a way better shooter than I am a blocker, so we're going to be up there casting them in as well, baby. Soft hands on the football field, you feel me? you got to be soft around the greens. NBA Finals, two minutes left versus a birdie putt to win the match. What are you more nervous? Let's say the NBA Finals and stakes a little higher, you know, like <laughs> legacy and all that okay. stuff. Well, Pat, you said that you've never been more nervous than the match. No, I'm for sure Birdie Blood. Really? Yeah, yeah, no chance. You know, we get out there more than minute, the Super Bowl. Get out there two-minute drill, you know, we just go back to what we do. Yeah, that's just what it is. Um, it's a lot hot, harder than what I'm saying, but that's how I feel. Um, but uh, it's uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not the, the best golfer. I'm a real streaky putter. We're going to see if I can make that putt in that moment. All right, what should the fans expect tomorrow? I would say good TV. Uh, I think it's going to be a good match regardless, and uh, we're going to be talking a lot of trash, having a lot of fun, and I'll be drinking a lot of Coors Light, so it's going to be a good time. (laughs) So, guys, definitely going to be a a lot of fun, but make no mistake, both of these teams really want to win. In that event we were at last night, Mahomes and Kelsey were actually an hour late because they were out here on the course grinding out as much practice as they could before the match here tonight. I just want to still frame of your face and your smile looking up at these guys and getting to talk to all of them, Andy. It was totally epic and totally the dream assignment. It is. It is. Andy, awesome work as always. Can't wait to watch this weekend. Thanks so much. And tonight, the coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on TNT, True TV, HLN. Tonight, have to watch it. Can't wait. And it's before our bedtime. Right. We can actually (laughs) actually watch. watch this one. All right. It is a huge day in the nation's capital at the Supreme Court. It is opinion day. We're going to talk about the major decisions that could come down today with this group of brainiacs. That's next. And just like that. 
two hours down, one to go. It's 8 a.m. here on the East Coast. We are so happy you are with us. There's I'm a lot of news to I know well, because of the baseball. Yeah. <laughs> You're pretty cool, too. Oh, thanks. Perfect game, perfect pitch for the Yankees. We're going to tell you all about it in a little bit, but we are just two hours away from the Supreme Court, expected to hand down major decisions that will affect the entire nation. The justices have saved some of their biggest and most consequential opinions for last. We're going to break down what is left from affirmative action to student loan relief for millions of Americans. And we're hearing this morning, presumed human remains. They were discovered inside the wreckage of the doomed Titan submersible. Medical experts are now set to analyze those potential remains. We'll have the latest on that investigation into the catastrophic implosion. Plus. I believe women should be every place the decisions are being made. And that's just, we're just not there yet as a country. We're going to have more of that interview, our conversation with Melinda French-Gates as she vows to get more women elected to public office. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. It is decision day. Take a look. We'll pull up some live pictures. There you go. Sun rising over the Supreme Court this morning, where huge decisions will come down just two hours from now. The justices have left some of their most consequential cases for last. Here are some of the big opinions we're still waiting for. Can a person's race be used as a factor in college admissions? Will the court allow President Biden's student loan forgiveness program to go forward for more than 40 million Americans? And there is the case of a web designer who refused to create a gay wedding website. All of these critical issues at stake. CNN Supreme Court analyst John Biskupic tracking it all for us. So many big decisions, like they always do. They leave them until the end. But I, what I find so interesting about all three of those cases is just how many people they directly affect immediately. It, it's so true, Poppy. And we'll know within the next 48 hours, likely just what the justices say and do that will affect so many people. And I'd like to pick up first with the important racial affirmative action on Campus One, because that's going to have so many practical consequences in classrooms across the country. But it also goes to a very big, large question about American identity. And let me just play that out, given that in some ways it goes all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. The question is whether admissions officers on campuses can take into account an applicant's race with a lot of other factors in deciding who gets coveted seats on campus. And since 1978, in a decision uh, by the name of Bakke, Regents of uh, uh, the University of California versus Bakke, the Supreme Court said that admissions officials can look at race, but they can't do quotas. That decision has always been controversial, but yet it's been the model for what our higher education system has done. And the justices appear to have a majority to roll that back. But it wouldn't be just rolling back the 1978 Bakke decision and the 2003 decision that really robustly affirm the idea that uh, race-conscious admissions are important for campus diversity. It could also be undercutting in some ways the promise of Brown v. Board of Education from 1954 and integration. But let me just sketch out a bit of the, the counter idea, and it comes from Chief Justice John Roberts, who has said in the education context, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to actually stop 
discriminating on the basis of race. Stop racial discrimination by stop looking at applicants' race. He has been very strong about this principle that we have to move away from considering race because that will actually help America move forward. The other idea, the one that's prevailed since then, is the idea that you have to take into account race to actually end racism and to fulfill this very important ideal of campus diversity that will then play out, Poppy, mm -hmm. in businesses, the military, and education across the country. You know, Joan, I think Poppy makes a great point when she talks about just the, the wide scale of people that these decisions could affect. And one of those issues is religious liberty as well. What's your sense of kind of how that's going to play out? That's another one where we've seen a pattern among the justices, Phil, where they have been more open to claims from religious conservatives. And in these cases, we have a, a Christian website designer who does not want to uh, make wedding websites for same-sex couples. And then we have a uh, a former postal worker who was disciplined uh, after he refused to work on Sundays. And I think in both those cases, the justices are going to be sympathetic to those claims. The question, Phil, will be how wide will they sweep? All right, Joan Biskupic, as always, big day, days ahead. Thanks so much. Uh, we want to bring in Estet uh, Herndon, CNN political analyst, national politics reporter for The New York Times, Jessica Dean, CNN congressional correspondent, Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, and Natasha Alford, CNN political analyst and senior correspondent at The Grio. And Natasha, I want to start with you because we ended our last segment with you talking about, we were talking about the issue of equity, the, the Biden administration. And one of the things that I think they point to regularly is they put the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, and that is progress, or that's them saying they're delivering on that agenda promise. Um, this is a Supreme Court, which they don't control. But I think the idea of affirmative action being front and center right now, everything that Joan just said, and you made the point of the issues the administration may not be getting at are the ones that touch people day to day lives that really kind of connect. This is one of those issues that will connect whether you're for it or against it. What's your sense of how this plays out? It's a huge issue. We've seen uh, the experiment of this before in California. In 1996, affirmative action was taken away from public universities. And within a year, you saw a 50% drop in yeah. black and Hispanic students going to these selective <clears throat> public universities. And so uh, there's sort of this obsession with, you know, if you take race out, then everything will be about merit. And that's just not the reality in college admissions. Uh, we have uh, policies around legacy admission, right? If someone who was in your family went to a university, you get a bump in that process. So even if you take race away, there's still a possibility that there may be complaints or lawsuits uh, as universities try to implement race neutral policies. So, again, it's far from over, even if you take race out of the decision-making and admissions. Instead, we heard Joan talking about the precedent um, that was set uh, by Baki a long time ago mm -hmm. and, then and then affirmed really powerfully uh, in 2003. But it was Justice O'Connor in 2003 who wrote that opinion in Greta versus Bollinger, which was about the University of Michigan Law School. Mm -hmm. In that opinion, she said, yes, race is important. There is a diversity... There is a compelling state interest to preserve it, so the court has a role here, et cetera. But at the end of that opinion, she said there needs to be a sunset, say 25 years, yeah. when we have to come to terms with the fact that she pointed to the 14th Amendment that said that we have to do away with government-imposed discrimination. We're very close to that 25 years that she was pointing to. The question now is, what does this court right. do? Because
because it's a completely different court than when she wrote this. Absolutely. I think that change in that kind of 25 years has come up with this court significantly. When you think about voting rights and the Roberts Court on voting rights, too, there was a question around whether it was still that, that kind of imposed formula was necessary to make sure that uh, uh, the kind of government way of eliminating discrimination was still uh, needed, right? And so I think this court is kind of wrestling with the continued question of how to, to, how to deal with continued discrimination. And I think for folks who really prioritize this as a way uh, uh, to, you know, kind of feel equity in the country, that this is the court that has kind of stepped away from those values. And so I think when we think about like kind of the conservative court, you know, largely, there's been a question of legitimacy too, yeah. right? Like they have seen a public sentiment really shift on this court. But I think in the last couple of weeks, when you had the voting rights decisions specifically kind of shift that, mm -hmm. I think it opened up some, uh, opens up a kind of new space. But to Nanhasha's yeah. point, there's only a couple decisions that really affect folks' like lives in a tangible like way. right away. Right. And mm -hmm. those are the things that really color how people view the I, court. I also, and so when you think of student loans, yeah. when you think of the college admissions, those can completely undo or, or upend that kind of legitimacy or, or kind of confidence question in the court, even as we've had these decisions that may have gone a different way than folks expected over the last couple of weeks. I also I didn't mean to jump on you there, but I Come think on. it's interesting that um, Justice O'Connor told her biographer 11 years after she wrote this that that may have been a misjudgment. This was three years after Michael Brown was killed. She said, essentially, well, maybe it needs to be more than 25 years. Maybe we haven't progressed as much as we've hoped. I mean, you think? How long was slavery? <laughs> I, I don't know. 25 years seems like such an arbitrary number when, you know, my father is still alive and he desegregated a school in Syracuse, New York, and that was wow. in upstate New York, right? So our sense of what it takes to uh, create equity, to sort of have this, this starting line that is, is equal is just not reality for so many people. Um, and, and this idea that, you know, somehow there's not merit in considering race and considering the whole story, again, just doesn't reflect the reality of people's lives. And let me also say, whenever you get into these questions of how long do we leave these programs and provisions in place, should there be a sunset, you have this natural tension. Instead, mention the voting rights case. That's the case where basically the Supreme Court said, we no longer need to have certain areas of the South run their voting rights plans past the You're talking about Shelby. Yes. And... Justice Ginsburg said, had the famous line in her dissent. She basically said, getting rid of these protections because everything's okay now, I'm paraphrasing. Getting rid of these is like getting rid of an umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. So I think we're going to see some of that at play today as well. Just can I ask you, you know, I think what's important from a political perspective is we have seen in the last, I mean, ask Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court voters yeah. whether or not these cases have a tangible effect on voters. Supreme Court has been a central issue since 2016, no question about it. But I think individual decisions have had a major effect on voters. Uh, and we've seen it play out. These are cases where it could. We had Chris Christie on last night. The Republican kind of uh, primary field is kind of working through itself. And the reality remains, Donald Trump is still the front runner by a significant margin. And I want to play something that Chris Christie said to our colleague, Caitlin Collins, last night and get your reaction to it. We didn't go after Trump early enough, and we allowed a certain narrative to set in about Donald Trump that then became impossible for us to change or overcome. And so, look, he has been a major world figure for the last eight years. And so we're not going to be able to knock down his numbers or shake some of his support. I've been in the race for three weeks, in three weeks. But we have, you know, seven months until the first people vote. And my message will be heard by then. 
That interview was, was so interesting, and, and, and Caitlin did such a great job with it. I invite everybody to go watch it because I think it really lays out um, so much that's kind of swirling around the 2024 GOP presidential field right now and, and where these tension points are, right? So you have somebody like Ron DeSantis that isn't going to directly go after Trump as much as he, you know, as much as Chris Christie, who every answer Right. This is what he's building the whole thing on. I was there at Faith and Freedom, which was in D.C., evangelical voters. Uh, it was It's a cattle call. It was the first one that we've really seen where, where all of them come through. It's not a pejorative term, by the way. No. Campaign speak. <laughs> no, not a pejorative term. There are no cows. But yes, it's everybody parades through. And Chris Christie spoke. And it is a very Trump-friendly crowd. And they booed him, as, as I know you guys talked about. And But it was uh, worth noting that behind me, a couple of people were like, yeah. Yeah, so there are sprinkles of that throughout. It is telling to see Chris Christie now talking about this. Here we are in 2023, coming up on 2024. He was in that 2016 cohort. And for him to say we didn't go after him soon enough. Mm -hmm. Remember, everyone thought everybody else was going to take Trump out. And then no one did. And then no one did. And here we are. And is it too late? I think that's the question. And I think that's what Chris Christie's getting at. He hopes it's not, right? He's pinning a whole candidacy on it. But is it? Um, I said it was a fabulous interview. And one point Caitlin asked him about specifically on this was, well, what about people like Asa Hutchinson mm-hmm. or Will Hurd who have gotten in the race who, who are not going directly after him? Do you think Chris Christie can convince candidates like that? He has to if he was trying to create that type of permission structure that he's talking about and able to in order to, in order for folks to talk about Donald Trump in a more explicit way. But he has an electorate problem. There are not enough Republicans who are anti-Trump because the, the Republican Party remains a kind of pro-Trump electorate. And so there are not simply enough Republicans. Those folks have left. They become independents. They've been voting for Democrats. I mean, the, the party has shifted so in the last 10 years where it's actually forcing those candidates. You know, there's certainly those pockets that exist within the party, but it's not enough folks to be able to win the nomination. You know, I was talking to Nate Cohn, the Times chief polling advisor about this, and he was saying really specifically, he was like, you have to combine anti-Trump wings to be able to overtake his coalition. And that requires some folks who are in the more moderate camp that may speak to an Asa Hutchinson or a Chris Christie. But that also requires the folks who are voting for a Ted Cruz in 2016, who are maybe voting for a Ron DeSantis this time around, or maybe anti-Trump for different reasons that aren't ideological. And so you have to combine those wings to be able to cobble together a coalition that overtakes him. And so that means being anti-Trump by itself is not, frankly, enough. Yeah, because they simply don't have enough of those people in the Republican Party. And so I think we could kind of overcomplicate it a little bit. The Republican Party is not anti-Trump. And for top down, they know that. <laughs> and so when you're at the RNC, when you're at talking to Republican leadership, they're frankly saying that fairly openly. The version of them that goes forward has to include some part of Donald Trump, because frankly, the voters want that. Thus to the exist. loyalty pledge. Exactly. Okay. Thus the inability to be able to talk about him directly. Thus his ability to skip out of the debates. All of that are based off of the fact that he has an elector that's still largely with him. Dude, you should have a podcast. He does. All right, everybody stay with us. Uh, we've got a lot more coming up. Uh, we also have this, the Titan submersible wreckage recovered from the seafloor. What officials are looking at? We'll dig into that. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So 
a week after Coast Guard officials determined a Titanic-bound vessel had suffered a catastrophic implosion, killing all five people on board, crews have now recovered what appears to be human remains and large portions of that Titan submersible. Those remains will now be examined by medical professionals here in the United States. Paula Newton joins us live again this morning from Ottawa. Paula, good morning to you. Tragic day. I mean, they knew it was coming, but to actually discover human remains, what more can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely, Poppy, and so many significant developments, but as you highlight, very tough for the families and yet a measure and comfort of knowing that those remains were found and that that will also help in the investigation. I also want to point out that there are several investigations here. Late last night, we got a statement from the Transportation Safety Board headquartered here in Ottawa. They, too, gave us more details on the investigation. They said investigators have finished collecting relevant documents and completed the preliminary interviews with those on board the support vessel Polar Prince. You remember that is the mothership to the Titan. The investigation team has taken possession of the vessel's voyage data recorder, which has been sent to the TSB Engineering Laboratory here in Ottawa for further analysis. They add that given those large pieces of wreckage that the Coast Guard has, that they have also reviewed those, they've cataloged them, and that they now are in the possession of the U.S. Coast Guard. Poppy, this is going to be a very complicated investigation nonetheless, but the fact that they have such large pieces of wreckage, they have the data recorder. They also have human remains, which will be very important to the family so that they actually understand a TikTok, right? A minute by minute of what happened and hopefully that their family members didn't suffer any pain. All of that's so important. I want to highlight several investigations, not the least of which may be criminal investigations, which are yet to come, although that is not a sure thing. Most of the U.S., what the U.S. Coast Guard is doing and the Transportation Safety Board here in Canada is to make sure that submersibles like this are safe and whether or not more regulation is needed. And regulated. Paula, thank you for the reporting and the update. All right, well, parts of Paris are burning for a second night after a 17-year-old was shot and killed by police. How the French government is reacting to the protests and violent clashes will be live in Paris next. Well, happening overnight for a second straight night, police in France clashing with protesters after an officer shot and killed a 17-year-old driver during a traffic stop. Police arresting 150 protesters for setting cars, town halls, schools, and police stations on fire across the country. They also threw stones and shot fireworks at police. Now, French officials say they're deploying 40,000 officers as more unrest is expected. Is expected. as Melissa Bell is live with us in Paris with more. Uh, Melissa, they clearly expect more. What are you hearing right now about how this goes forward? Well, even now, Phil, what we're seeing in Nanterre, which is the neighborhood to the northwest of Paris, where, first of all, uh, this uh, tragic a killing took place on Tuesday morning. Young Nile was just 17 years old, and what's emerged is video evidence showing the moment the police stop happened and showing the contradiction with the police's version of initial version of events. And that really has fueled that anger that you've seen. The young boy was killed uh, really instantly, pronounced dead an hour after uh, that stop. That has fueled that anger that you're seeing even now beginning to bubble up. Uh, there is a march going on in that suburb of Nanterre that was called for by young Nael's mother uh, uh, on this uh, just a few days after the killing and after two very violent nights where you're quite right, Phil, the violence has only increased. That march really an expression of the anger. You have to understand that here in France, the system, the way the state is made, it chooses not to look at questions of uh, race, ethnicity, and it becomes very difficult and has been traditionally over the years 
to investigate any of these incidents. And I'm afraid that here the French police have had form of traffic stops and identity checks that go wrong. That is what you're seeing even now in that suburb of Paris, that pent-up anger that authorities fear will spill into tonight for yet another anger night of rage and destruction, Phil. All right, Melissa Bell, great reporting. Keep us posted. Thanks so much. Well, music icon Madonna forced to postpone her world tour because of a health scare. Her manager revealed on social media that she spent several days in the ICU with a serious bacterial infection, but he says she's expected to make a full recovery, so that is good news. A source says that she's now out of the ICU. Her celebration tour was scheduled to kick off July 15th in Canada before heading to the United States and Europe. Her manager says they will announce a new start date and reschedule shows as soon as they have them. Well, any moment now, we'll have the new weekly jobless claims. I'm excited. Economic data, what they show and its impact on the economy. Plus. I vote in any election on both sides of the aisle. Sometimes I vote Republican, sometimes Democratic. I'm a very independent voter, and I don't want to be pegged as one or the other. I think that the best policy is made when we reach across the aisle. Philanthropist Melinda French-Gates on her shift towards politics and who she's focusing on getting elected to public office. Well, Melinda French-Gates detailing her latest mission, getting more women elected to public office. As a philanthropist, a longtime advocate for women and girls, she has already pledged a billion dollars to promote gender equity. Now she tells me she's using her resources and her energy to get women elected at all levels of government. I believe women should be every place the decisions are being made. And that's just we're just not there yet as a country. Back with us, Natasha Alford, Jessica Dean, Christine Romans. Morning again, guys. Um, I was struck by a lot of things. I wasn't surprised that she took sort of this mission, um, a politic, but but what was notable, Natasha, is she said it's no coincidence that she wrote this big op-ed about it making this announcement one year, one year to the to the mark after Roe versus Wade was overturned. Absolutely. It's about policy. Yeah, it is about policy. I mean, I I think a lot of women are uncomfortable with the idea that people who don't have our lived experience are making laws about our bodies and dictating what we can do. And it's not necessarily, as she said, about where you fall, um, but making sure that women are in the room with these decisions. Globally, we are not leaders. America is not the leader in terms of promoting women at the national government level. We rank 66 in the world. There are no black women in the Senate, despite the fact that there are millions of black women in the country. And, so and no black or indigenous women elected governor either, right. she points out. That's right. And so we are already playing catch up in a country where women were left out of the democratic process for so long. And so that's why organizations like She Should Run exist or the campaign school at Yale, because there is a political ambition gap. It's not that we're not qualified, but someone has to cultivate that interest, uh, that sense that we can do it. But also, you read her up, but also yeah. make it possible, right? Like there are so many impediments to women, especially women with young children, being able to run Right, as it's well. creating the conditions in terms of... Um, and I don't want to take a side here, but men are convinced that they're qualified for literally you, everything. You can side with women any day. Women Research are, like, has constantly that put, That's not appealing. Um, Research has There's also the, 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 not just kind of the mental aspect or, or how people feel or think about things, but real life, mm -hmm. you know, if you're having kids, if you're trying to deal, like, 
it is a lot. I'm sorry, it just is. I, I don't know if I'm a, allowed to say it is. Like you guys carry a lot more weight, and I think there's a there's a perception of you you have to do X, Y, and Z, and yeah. that gets in the way um, to some degree. Yeah, and look, being on the hill, you know this. So much of their lived experience, like what you're talking about, is it impacts the bills that they're going to put forth, yes. what they get behind. And if you don't have that lived experience, it takes groups or people coming to you and trying to plead with you to do X, Y, or Z. And so more women across the board is a better thing. Representative government should be representative of the country it serves. And we are seeing more of it. But to Natasha's point, we still don't have a black woman in the Senate. or We don't have one right now. Kamala Harris was there, now vice president, obviously. Uh, we are seeing more. But, you know, I think about somebody like Katie Britt, the senator from Alabama. She has young children. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, of course, young children. Um, and it is hard. It's hard on families and people to both serve. Uh, and, and that goes for dads, too. But also to run. Running for office mm -hmm. is tough. And yeah. they come after you, and it's it's not always an enjoyable experience. Um, I don't cover the hill, you guys do, but we do sometimes see people who are business leaders, mm -hmm. right, CEOs, et cetera, then go on to run for the Senate, et cetera. There has always been a dearth of women yeah. leading businesses. The number now, I think, is ten and a half percent of Fortune 500 companies it's run by women, so which is the most, but so low. But there are more Fortune 500 CEOs named Jim than there are women CEOs, you know, <laughs> Fortune 500 companies. I mean, That's like a fact. We've talked about this before. It's yeah, like yeah. Jim or John yeah. or something. But yeah. there are more Johns than there are women running yeah. running uh, Fortune 500 companies, and that is just a, a real shame. Uh, but you are seeing better representation now, and that pipeline, I hope, will get better. But it's, it's some of these, it's just shocking to me that covering banking for 25 years, you know, 25 years ago, we were like, wow, we've got a pipeline of great women to be managing directors, and we're going to have all these CEOs someday. And there's like one. Jane Frazier. Yeah. You know, there's like one. There's one. And that was 25 years of, of trying to develop women. So this, we've got a lot of work to do. This is why affirmative action exists. We often talk about it in the context of race, but gender also applies, right? And so in the workplace, letting women know that they are qualified or cultivating that talent pipeline, when you look at research, it starts to fall off as girls go from school to college and then into the workplace. They start off thinking, I can do it. And then there's this messaging yeah. that feeds into and uh, lack of confidence. Listening to them, Katie Porter, for example, on the Democratic side, we just had Nancy Mason last week as a single mother of teenagers. And those lived experiences inform how they how they legislate. Um, not to change the topic, but Romans, you've got economic data, and I've been very excited to talk to you about economic data, and we're both looking at our phones during the break, looking Look at the economic data. So like, tell me about the economic data. What do we get? So, uh, first quarter GDP, 2%, a big revision, a stronger first quarter than we had thought because the consumer, the consumer, look at that. So 2.6% in the fourth quarter, slow down to 2%, but um, we had thought this was going to be 1.3, 1, 1, yeah, so this is stronger. Consumer and exports. So the economy is still pretty stable, leaning towards strong here. And then jobless claims, low, 239,000 first-time unemployment benefits. What that means in English is there aren't a lot of layoffs. You're hearing about layoffs in tech hearing about layoffs in banking and in media, but we're not seeing it in people actually going and filing for unemployment benefits. So this is still a strong job market. Good news for Main Street, a headache for Jay Powell and the Fed because oh, yeah. they're going to have to keep raising interest Can rates to get inflation down. Can you very quickly give me your favorite saying about the recession that we've all been waiting for and watching for? If this is what a recession feels like, bartender, pour me another. It's <laughs> my favorite Romans. <laughs> so all right, great. guys, stay with Thank us. You. That was great. We've got more coming up, including... 
Run DMC, I'm very excited about this. The hip hop pioneers from Hollis, Queens helped usher in the golden age of hip hop. Legendary rock and roll Hall of Famer, Daryl DMC McDaniels, shares his thoughts on the genre's 50th anniversary. It's coming up next. <laughs> <laughs> You know it. I don't even have to tell you. You know it. One of the most iconic and earliest mainstream hip-hop hits by the incomparable Run DMC. It's a great one, but what about Walk This Way? The collaboration with Aerosmith? Run DMC gave the rock group a second life, arguably changed American music forever with that one. Now, as one of the first hip-hop groups to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Run DMC helped define hip-hop and, let's be honest, American culture, for that matter. Tonight, Daryl DMC McDaniels will take part in the main event in Cleveland to honor the music genre's 50-year anniversary and unveil the new in-depth exhibition of hip-hop called Holla If You Hear Me. Handwritten lyrics, iconic jewelry. I was looking at some of the jewelry. LL Cool J's stuff was there. It looks great. Uh, from some of the biggest moguls, just some of the items that will be on display. And joining us right now, the president and CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Greg Harris, and hip-hop icon, the hip-hop icon himself, co-founder of Run DMC, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Daryl DMC McDaniels. He's also uh, the author of Daryl's Dream, which Poppy and I are going to be reading to our kids yes. uh, very soon. But, but guys, one, thanks for joining us, too. Daryl, I want to start with this because I, I was watching your acceptance speech uh, or your in induction speech um, when you were inducted into the Hall of Fame. And, and a lot of the notes uh, that, that you guys made resonated with me. But the idea of hip-hop itself and where it has come over the course of 50 years, what is it, like the, the genesis of it's, I think, DJ Cool Herc's back-to-school party with his sister um, or something like that, the evolution of it. What stands out in your mind when people ask you, how did hip-hop get to this point? Well, hip-hop is just basically music. It's a culture. We was inspired by rock, pop, pop, funk, soul, R&B, jazz. So Grandmaster Kaz, probably the greatest rapper ever, he said this, hip-hop didn't invent anything. We reinvented everything. So we were those kids watching Soul Train. We were those kids watching American Man Stand. So we was influenced by rock and roll. And if you listen to hip hop before it was recorded, before Rapper's Delight, and all the early rap songs, when you heard the live performances of the tapes of Grandmaster Flash, the Funky Four Plus One, the Treacherous Three, the Cold Crush Four, the Fantastic Five, Every MC, every MC prophesied, this is from 73 to 79, before Rappers Alike, every rapper said these words, one day my name will be found in the Hall of Fame. Mm. So it was a prophetic creation that came from the spirit of these young boys and girls in New York City, uh, more importantly, the Bronx, who the world thought had nothing. Yeah. But inside of them was this beautiful music. You know, I'm so glad you said that because I was so touched when I was reading that you, you talked about growing up in New York City. And you said, when the reality of the struggle of life brought hell, music brought heaven. 
Music brought heaven, rock and roll brought us heaven, soul brought us heaven, jazz brought us heaven, rhythm and blues brought us heaven. Yeah. Greg, can I ask you, tonight's event itself, um, you know, there's been a bunch of stuff that's happened around the 50th anniversary. I think it was a big, uh, it was a big event here in New York in a, in a month or two as well. What's tonight represent? What, what should people be looking for? Yeah, you know, tonight, again, it's the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And it's this is the, the premier exhibition that's going to celebrate that. We're going to cut the ribbon on this thing tonight. It's going to be open all summer long here at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And there is a major significance in this. We are the premier music museum in the world. Um, we've been open 28 years. We had 14 million visitors have journeyed to Cleveland to experience this. And hip hop is, as, 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 as uh, Daryl said, hip hop is the, you know, powerful, powerful synthesis of so much that's come before it. But it's the most important cultural art form mm -hmm. and music that's being made today. Mm. Um, it really resonates around the world. And this is going to tell that story. And by the way, on the Hall of Fame reference, not only were the other artists talking about it, uh, when Run DMC made one of their earliest videos, it was about being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the Rock, and it didn't exist. The rock and Roll Hall of Fame didn't exist. <laughs> That's crazy. It didn't exist. We had Larry, we had Larry Bud Melman from the David Letterman Show saying, "You guys can't come in here. This is a Rock and Roll Museum." That was in '85, wow. and then '86, yeah. it came to fruition. And, and so this exhibit, like. This is for anybody that loves hip hop. They're gonna come and see their favorite artists. They're gonna see special stuff from our vault, special artifacts. They're gonna feel that connection. That's what mm -hmm. music does, it connects us. Mm -hmm. And people that don't really know hip hop that well, they're gonna learn about it and they're gonna feel it and they're gonna understand how it fits into the continuum of rock and roll and it's all one big family. And you gotta understand this though. I've been traveling this world forever <laughs> Globally, people say, when Steven Tyler took that mic stand in that Walk This Way video and knocked down the wall that was separating mm. y'all, that didn't just happen in the video, that happened in the world God. for real. That's what music does. I love that. Let's open it up to the table here. So uh, on that note, if I could, Daryl, uh, honor to talk to you. So when you all dropped Raising Hell in mid-80s, that was the first album, in my experience, that really just blew up and crossed over and hit the suburbs and really spoke to even kids like me. Did you understand at that right. moment just how much of an impact that record was having and just how much history was being made? No, not really, because the reason why Raising Hell is one of the best, if not the best hip hop album ever, is because <laughs> we were just trying to get the approval of all the MCs, DJs, rappers, and break dancers before us. We wanted Grandmaster Flash and Cool Modi and Africa Bambada <laughs> and Cool Herc to say, we love you guys. We love what you're doing. We had no idea it was going to take the world by storm. You got through to me, too. Mr. <laughs> <Dead. laughs> when you look back at the scope of a long and storied career, what's the highlight? For you, what's the peak moment that really defines your relationship to hip-hop? What's the moment you're most proud of? Um, I think the moment that we're most proud of for representing hip-hop, because, look, I'm not a pioneer. I'm not a legend. I'm a participant in the culture of hip-hop. I think the defining moment besides being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was 1985 when he was called to participate in Live Aid. Mm. 
Bill Graham said, I will not participate and work with y'all if y'all don't have Run DMC here. And a lot of people on the board of Live 8 said, why do you want those guys here? Raps are fat. They're not even going to be here in three years. But for us to be um, chosen to participate in Live 8 with Black Sabbath and Tina Turner and Mick Jagger, it showed the world that we are a legitimate form Mm. of entertainment like everybody else. Sasha. Daryl, for the young people who have something to say, who fear that perhaps they can't break into the industry, right? They're they're commenting on social issues. They have substance, but they feel like modern day hip hop wants them to be something else. What would you advise them? Here's advice to them. Study David Bowie, study Bob Dylan. Study Janis Joplin, Joplin and study Run DMC. See what we did. Look at what we did. Look at what the world is doing and do whatever it is that you like doing. Make that song, play that beat, write that verse, do that dance, paint that painting. Also, we all can, you got to do. We need to learn how to manifest like Daryl. Yes. <laughs> that you would be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It, and it didn't even exist yet. And, and yet you manifested it, which is so incredible. True. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So all you have true. to do is just get up and create. It's art. It's mm-hmm. for everybody. Made our morning, guys. Just like that. Daryl McDaniels, Greg Harris. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl. Huge congratulations. What a career. Thank you. Thank you. Rock on. Rock on indeed. And guys, don't forget, pick up Daryl's dream. We're going to get it for our kids. Pick up his new children's book uh, and watch tonight. I'm like so fired up right now. (laughs) All right. Well, this also fired me up this morning when I opened saw this. Something happened that hasn't happened in 11 years. Only 24 times in Major League Baseball history. That's right. Perfection. See the moment this Yankee star made history. And Biles is back. Simone Biles set to make her gymnastics return for the first time since the Tokyo Olympics. Those details ahead. Can we talk about perfection? Every professional athlete strives for it. It's rarely ever achieved. Wednesday night, Domingo Herman was perfect. Este Uri Ruiz stands in his way. Grounded to third. Donaldson has it. There it is. Perfection. And amazing that that was amazing that that was the last play. play. The 24th person ever to throw a perfect game in a major league game. He did it against a team, hasn't been no hit since 1991, and he owes a lot of it to the team around him, especially first baseman Anthony Rizzo. You see this play right here, diving stop in the fifth to preserve baseball history. Jermon becomes the first Dominican-born player to retire 27 straight batters in a single game. He also became the fourth Yankee pitcher to do it, and I love it. I love it, too. Favorite story of the day. We agree on this one. I also love this. Simone Biles is coming back. This is a pretty good story. After she famously withdrew from the Tokyo Olympics after suffering the twisties, which is a mental block where gymnasts lose the track of their position midair, she is now listed to compete in the U.S. Classic, which is set for August just outside of Chicago. Now, the Classic is considered a precursor to the U.S. championships, which have been used as a soft launch for comebacks in the past, according to the International Gymnastics Federation. Biles has won seven Olympic medals, including four golds over the course of her career. I think many more to come. Also this, before we go, we want to end the show today saying goodbye 
to one of our teammates, one of our favorite people here in the studio, CNN cameraman Mike Stein. There he is. There he is. He can't come on set because he's actually running the camera <laughs> that we're reading this on. He is retiring today. It's his final day at CNN. He's our guy on camera three on this show, and he's been at CNN for more than 20 years. So we wish you lots of love and good fortune. <laughs> And lots of sleep in the near future. Also, Mike is a huge New York Rangers fan. Look at, look that. at that. Can you see the screen? Look up. That's your Mike, look up. name and your jersey. Look at that. That's in um, our studio. The, what you're seeing right there is a Rangers jersey in our studio, retired Mike Stein, not an Islanders jersey or a Devils jersey. Um, and, and they just announced their 2023-2024 schedule. So, Mike, you might able, be able to catch a few of those games. Now, thank you for all you've done. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.